Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. And I'm Gray, or GSV on the Discord. Gray, welcome! What are you doing here in Denver? Uh, I've been on a vacation just visiting some friends. A friend of mine was back from Iraq for the first time in a couple of years, so it was good to get out. And since my airport at each end of the trip was Denver, it uh, was a really good opportunity to drop in. Yeah. Thank you for dropping in. This has been really cool. It's it's really neat meeting people from the rationalist community that I only know online, you know? Yeah. I, I don't get to do that very often. Um, Where where are you from? I know uh, it's on the East Coast, right? Uh, Midwest. I live Midwest. in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul in Minnesota. Okay. I thought Minnesota was on the East Coast. I don't know where our states are. We're on like the western tip of Lake Superior, the northern end of the state is. Okay. Uh, Iowa's to the south and North Dakota's to the west, if that helps. It does. It does a little bit. I guess it's not on the coast, but I still think of it as the east. I mean, Lake Superior is bigger than some things people thought were oceans, so <laughs> you, you could argue that it's on the north coast. <laughs> there we go. Cool. If the United States had a north coast, that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, welcome. How do you like it here in Denver? Uh, big fan. It's Everybody is astonishingly polite. The drivings, like people in cars are polite to pedestrians. Everyone's got an animal that they're nice to, and everyone expects people to be nice to animals. Huh. Um, Do you Minnes- not get that in Minnesota? No, Minnesota's got all of that, but uh, what I've noticed, wh- how is it that most transplants put it? As I, I'm, I, was, I grew up in a whole bunch of other countries, and to the extent that I grew up in the U.S., I was in Virginia. Minnesota has a lot going for it. The problem is that people from Minnesota always have enough friends already. Okay. And so as someone who moves there... Either all of your friends are going to be transplants, or you just don't have a lot of them. Okay. And Denver seems a lot more... There, there seems to be, I guess, more churn, you'd call it here. Oh, yeah. So... We've had a huge... I don't know. Can you call it a population explosion? You can call it whatever you want. Okay. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, influx of, of people. I don't know an, if an it's... Incidus? An incidus? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's an explosion. I don't know what, what makes an explosion an explosion, but we've had a lot of people coming here over the past six years or so. Just every year. Huge growth. So... Yeah, there's a lot of new people here still meeting everyone else. Oh. So cool. I, I, I am glad to hear that you'd like it here. We're, we're always trying to get more people to move to Denver. Create our own little Berkeley in here someday. Speaking of Berkeley, that's where Jess is this week yeah. and next week. I hear, hear that it's a great time out there. Apparently. Except we, for the swatting. Yeah, I, which I need to hear more I, about. I, I want to hear more details about that too because Jess mentioned it to me and they did not know what was going on. But just just that it had happened, and it. I, I hope that the reason is something amusing. But it sounded like people might be a little bit nervous. And it's always funny when the SWAT team shows up. Yeah, you know that's a great time. <laughs> I, I feel like the, that should be the end to it's all fun and games until. But right, yeah, until the SWAT team shows up, throws a flashbang in your baby's crib. We uh, sorry, it shouldn't have gone there. But I mean, yeah. no, that's that's how. I mean, I don't know about baby's cribs, but I mean, I mean, it's happened it, at least once. I mean, just yeah, I. I don't want to say it's par for the course, but if someone told me that it had happened in a raid that was definitely botched in other ways, I my prior would lean significantly in the in the direction of it having happened. I mean, the, I mean, the police are way too militarized as it is, but also anyone who intentionally swats someone, that that's got to be some kind of serious assault charge nowadays. You're you're basically unleashing a rabid Rottweiler on your neighbor when you do that. <laughs> uh, I. The, I know that at least some swatting cases do produce some very pointed visits from the FBI. Okay. There's a, a YouTuber, I think Wings of Redemption was what he, what he was called, and he accused someone else of swatting him. After, he was swatted and accused a particular person of it, 
and that led to a great deal of flame war and an FBI visit to the person accused, okay. even who the FBI determined hadn't done it, but they did take it very seriously. So, you think the FBI would just be able to see who made the phone call? But I guess you, I'm not an intelligence agency. That. I mean, yeah. they they definitely have the technical capability to determine it by that means, but I'm not sure that they want that. That might actually not be admissible evidence, and I don't mm. think they want to take the chance of the non-admissibility of that evidence becoming a precedent that they're required to abide by. Mm. That's a good point. Well, at this point, it's all speculation anyway. We should wait till Jess is back and get the actual details. No, no, yes. let's just keep speculating. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what are we talking about today? Uh, what are we talking about today? Wait, no, we're not talking about things yet. I want to know some more about Gray. Is oh, Gray, yeah, totally. Gray's okay? Yes. Okay, just wasn't sure if you only wanted to go on GSV on the podcast or anything. But no, how did you get into this whole rationalist thing? As we often ask rationalists when they come. Let's see. I think five or six years ago, I found Rational Wiki reading about some medical silliness or other. And I read their article on Eliezer, which <laughs> contained a lot of scathing criticism yeah. from, and the, the tone of what I'd read on Rational Wiki to that point was generally pretty clinical, if sometimes snarky. Mm -hmm. But some of the treatment of Yudkowsky was so hostile that I felt myself intellectually obligated to read some of what he'd written wow. to see if the criticism actually worked. And then I found that it didn't. That's a hell of a backfire. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because that, that's actually my only exposure to Rational Wiki is I first went over there after I heard about it, Googled his name. I was like, oh, this is some place for cranks. You know, it's like Conservapedia or something. But apparently it's legit ish. Depends I, on what the topic is. Yeah, which is a drag. That shouldn't be how it works for Rational Anything. But yeah. Yeah. So you got reading from there and kind of fell into it at that point? Yeah, I, I started the sequences. I've been I've been trying like trying to start the sequences from scratch for five years and every time i just try to binge the whole thing oh god i you can't get do that. distracted before yeah, yeah. so I, I need to just set a proper reading schedule like you're doing with the the podcast go through three or like two three maybe four sequence posts daily for a while intermixed yeah. with other entertainment because if you try to binge it you, I, I actually calculated this once um going off of the word count telling someone to read the sequences is about like telling someone to just go read Worm or to read uh, one and three quarters King James Bibles. Holy crap. Yeah. That's almost two Bibles. Yeah. <laughs> Ration Rationality from AI to Zombies is curated and somewhat shorter than that, mm -hmm. but it's still a large time commitment to just ask someone to do. I believe Rationality AI to Zombies is still too big to be bound into a single copy. It would have to be in more than one volume. That sounds about right. I've got the PDF copy on my phone, and I think it's eleven hundred eight and a half by eleven pages in PDF form. Yeah. So that's at at the very least, that's at the very upper limit of what you can bind in paperback. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe if like you got a textbook publisher because they got some good good binding tech on or, them, or like some really the the mother of all spiral binders. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. Uh, Discord or subreddit? Discord. Okay. Have you ever been on the subreddit? I've read the subreddit. I, I Reddit is, is something I've been I've wanted for years to be more active in, because I have enough of a spectrum of interests that people tell me, oh, you should you should Reddit about this sort of thing, mm -hmm. and it would just be a rabbit hole for people to go into on on other subjects. But it's not that I don't like the the discursive atmosphere of Reddit. It just feels like too large a commitment in a way that Discord doesn't. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time giving a legible description of why, but uh, Discord. It may be that Reddit feels too much like social media, 
Hmm. Discord offers most of the benefits of social media, and I don't, but it doesn't feel like I'm using social media, so it's actually replaced almost all of my Facebook use since I found a couple of servers I like. Cool. What are the other servers you're on? Uh, Slate Star Codex Discord, uh, another rationalist Discord called uh, ACN, A Comfy Neighborhood, hmm. uh, a couple of specialist servers for games that I like. Yeah, that that covers most of it. Cool. Um, I find that even online interactions with other people involved in rationality are significantly lower effort by default than uh, interacting with the baseline human. <laughs> so <laughs> the normies, as we call them. <laughs> that's yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's. I, I like the term baseline human. That, that is that is less pejorative and more sounds like, you know, something Spock would say. <laughs> we, we could use slime from Neil Stevenson's <laughs> Anathem. If, no, we uh, could not. <laughs> that would make us sound really bad. It, it actually, no, that's, that, that's gotta, when you say the word out loud, it definitely sounds like a word that's supremely insulting. Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah. So no, let's not use that. Baseline human is okay, yeah. but slime is pretentious. Yes. Yes. It's almost. It's. It's. I think that's even worse than brights. Like I mean, because brights was a self description, but God, it, that was just so pretentious, you know. And then and then slime is like the opposite side of that. Slime. Oh, so, you said slime with an M. Oh, slime. Slime. Sounds so close to slime though. So yeah. yeah. That that's probably why it comes off sounding so insulting. Yeah. Maybe if you di- if you used it, like if you directly used it as a loan word in another language, maybe it would sound better. Yeah. But in English, it has that quality of conveying an insult even when you don't know what it means. I think a lot of words like that, like the mouthfeel, is important. Like uh, slime, it just feels yucky. Like uh, I've heard the term Aspie for Asperger, which sounds you know all right. Some people refer to themselves as that. Then I've heard the term Spurg used as an insult, and that's just like. You you feel the difference in your mouth between those two words, right? Like one of them's like, oh yeah, okay, kind of nice, fun. The other one's like, ugh. The, those uh, the sibilant consonants definitely make a difference. Uh, I'm reminded of a conversation near the end of Saka Baron Cohen's The Dictator, where he, he's using Yiddish words in casual conversation with another person who's definitely not Jewish, uh-huh. and he says, "Well, you know, I have to hand it to to Yiddish." speakers those words like schmuck they really sound like what they're supposed to mean yeah. you don't need to know what a schmuck is to be insulted when you're called one yeah, right yeah so um welcome how have you how have you liked the discord i'm just curious it's it's great we have a couple of subject matter experts who are entertaining to interact with i play it at an rpg now with other people from the discord oh excellent yeah with um with wes and david spearman and uh, the other David Yusuf also we Thursdays usually cool and we're uh, we we put that in the server's voice channel so people can listen to it. Yeah. Um, Are you able to keep up with all the stuff? Because God, it's really hard to keep up with some of those channels. I don't find like the the basic conspiracy Discord in particular. I find pretty easy to keep up with. Okay. It's not like like the Slate Star Codex Discord has a user base that's at least an order of magnitude larger mm-hmm. and trying to follow everything that's going on. Well, most of the channels are pretty low content anyway, but even if you try to keep track of just the effort posting, you're still trying to drink from a fire hose and it's not that apart from the, the distinctly different uh, discursive environment. I'd have a hard time giving a legible description of why, but I, I like the conspiracy discords environment more than most of what I do online, so it gets a lot of my time. Cool. Uh, before we dive into the the main topic, I was also wondering, like, do you have a lot of friends, family that rationalist? Have you tried 
breaching the subject with anyone? I've, let's see, I've tried bringing it up with immediate family. Um, my parents, for one reason or another, are not receptive. And my brother, he, uh, he works a very demanding, weirdly scheduled occupation that makes it hard for him to just schedule time to read something. Mm. So it's, it's been, I, I feel like I could get him interested if I found the right hook, but I don't have a hook that's able to get him to devote some of his very limited free time to it. Okay. I think there was a deliberate effort to make a hook called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. <laughs> See, he he doesn't even he doesn't like anything about the canon Harry Potter. Oh, well, then he might like. I mean, if he, if he likes literally nothing about it, then he might still not like it. But if he if it's just because the characters were boring or whatever, then yeah, um, rationalist Harry is pretty different. Yeah, that that's a valid point. I will suggest it to him and see if I if I can get him through chapter ten. That anybody who's willing to read who I can get willing to read chapter one has been. And, and through to at least chapter five, where Eliezer himself says it kind of hit its stride, yeah. uh, has continued to 10 and everyone who hits 10 goes to the end. I've, I've tried, I don't know, I've, I've dropped some hints to my parents. It's not like they don't know that I have these two podcasts. Well, I guess down to one now, but it, it's a pretty big thing in my life. And so it's not like my parents and siblings don't know about it. They just aren't terribly interested. And, you know, I don't want to push anything on anyone if they're not into it, because that's the best way to turn someone off to something. It's just, yeah, get a cram down your throat, and you're like, fuck you. Maybe I would have liked this pizza if I got to eat it myself, but... Then you get Scott Alexander's most recent short story, uh, the one about the meditation cult. Yeah, that was which, fun. Yeah. I don't want to be enlightened, and you can't make me. Yep. I didn't read that post, so oh, okay. sounds fun. It's cool. yeah, uh, it, it's called Samsara, and oh, I I keep hearing about it. It's on. I've got it open on my phone. I haven't read. Pretty it much all of Scott Alexander's short stories are fun. He like he knows how to write humor. Yeah, which is really hard to do, and you know, it's entertaining, I guess, because it's humor. The only fictions of his that I know that I can think of off the top of my head were Unsung and whatever one where the person's having a trip and trying to like. What, oh, universal love or something said the cactus, said the cactus person, person. Yeah. i haven't read that one but i know about it that one's I, really I short keep meaning to but Scott's, they're both funny i think you probably heard the study of anglophysics because that was on yeah podcast. yeah that's right okay i like that one too yeah you're right everything he writes is funny and yeah. uh, never right. mind i was gonna say the sort of good but that's eliezer and not scott yeah um scott's i scott's fiction has gotten really polished over the years and mm -hmm. i enjoy all of it that i can think of mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I have a weird feeling about it. It's sort of an anti-psychedelic experience. Yeah. The 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 archetypal description I've, I've heard of a psychedelic experience is that there's this overpowering insight that you can't put into words. Hmm. And I have the opposite experience. The the I guess not the opposite. Not to say that there isn't that there's no insight. The problem is that I have the inverse experience. I have a bunch of words and I feel like there's an insight, but I can't for the life of me map it onto a thought. Okay. I think that's that's good though. That is that it, it's insidious and it gets into your brain. I, I keep thinking that in some way, if you have all these words that you kind of feel are pointing at something, but you can't figure out what it is, that somehow in the back of your head, it's going to alter the thinking a little bit. Scott's a sneaky one. <laughs> yeah, but occasion it's not always ideal. Um, sometimes you end up with things like unsong, which Scott himself says this is not didactic in any way, mm -hmm. but it's deliberately written about a subject that is so entwined with centuries of enthusiastic pareidolia that you're you're intended to feel that there's an insight there yeah even when you know that there are specific reasons to think there's not yeah i i loved that in the comments of of his, his chapters as you putting them out a constant refrain was uh this is not a coincidence because nothing is a coincidence anytime anything was a coincidence in one of his stories that was immediately quoted yeah or in any of his chapters 
And so I did have a blast reading Unsung in part for that. I need to, I should give it a reread just to see how many extra cabalistic uh, entanglements I can pick up on another pass. Because I, I, I missed a whole bunch of important stuff I know on my first read. I feel really sad that he's saying he's going to like edit it and cut down some things that were unnecessary. Apparently, I think I heard him say that he's going to take out all the references to wall drug because it really didn't do anything. I'm like... No, don't do that. I don't care. This whole story was an awesome, meandering experience. It was the journey, you know? Yeah. And Waldrug was a part of that. It's a great piece of Americana. I actually... I, yeah. I was there like... Leave it God, in. Like Leave everything untouched. Don't become George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be the refrain. Don't, <laughs> don't colorize unsung. Yes. <laughs> don't... Uh, yeah. Aaron shot first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've never actually done psychedelics? Uh, no. Okay. It's, yeah, the, I'm, I'm just going off of the, the archetypal description there. Um, my, my personal experience, only once have I had any sort of insight, and it wasn't like a grand insight of, to everything. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess this is true, and I, I should probably pursue this, but that's the closest I've ever had, and even then it wasn't really that big a deal. Have you had anything? I think with LSD, there's this sense of profundity to everything, mm-hmm. where it, it depends. Like, I, I've had... I've had experiences where I forgot that I took a drug and like you kind of lose um, your history and you're just there having raw experience. But then you come back from that after a few seconds or millions of years. It's hard to say. <laughs> so like there's this sense like, oh, this like it just feels profound, but it's not attached to anything. Um, the closest I've had to an insight would be like I had this long like level of like recursion back and forth in my head of like my mental model is someone else's mental model of my mental model of what I'm trying to explain. Mm-hmm. And I realized I, if, if anything could be realized in that sort of mindset, it was like, Oh, okay. There's really no way to get someone to like to, to know that you've explained something accurately to somebody, yeah. but that's not, you know, a, an original insight. It was just one that was somewhere clarified. Um, MDMA gives you sort of the insight that, I mean, it can in the right, it's hard to not be in the right mind space on that one. Cause it's not really psychedelic, but it like, it makes it so that you're not really capable, at least while on it, and you can carry this feeling forward of feeling like jealous of people um, where, you know, if, if a coworker is more successful, you just feel happy for them rather than feeling spiteful about it. Uh, if that's an insight, I guess. Um, Maybe if you had like a thought that seemed important while you were having one of those super profound moments, that might seem like a big insight. That might have been the thing about trying to explain stuff to people. Okay. All righty. Um, in that case, let's get on to the thing that you are doing, which is uh, the podcast Legal... No. It's it's about... Okay. You are podcasting the book Legal Systems Very Different from Our Own, uh, which was written by... Uh, David Friedman, uh, Peter Leeson, and David Scarbeck. So David Friedman is actually a re- writer of this book, too. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Didn't he co-write um, The Elephant in the Brain? I don't know. I will double check that, that. Yeah, that doesn't sound like Friedman, but he's got a variety of weird interests. I don't know anyone else with a PhD who plays World of Warcraft. So, oh, okay. or I know he did at the last time I read the Wikipedia bio about him, and he does SCA in his either seventies or eighties. So, damn. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty hardcore for someone in his eighties. You're doing this with permission from them. Yes, I I reached out. I didn't. I had never. I heard of Friedman. Oh, like 10, 11 years ago, 
when I was in an edgy teenage phase of reading everything about Austrian economics. Yeah. I probably would have come out of that one a little bit better if I'd gotten more Friedman and less Mises Institute sort of people. But um, I, I, I knew about the machinery of freedom. I didn't buy it at the time. And by the time I had complete discretion over what books I bought, I was no longer in the Austrian phase. But the, the name Friedman kind of cemented itself in my memory. Then I found through uh, the SSC podcast, um, Scott's review of legal systems very different from ours, and that primed a whole bunch of old associations to Friedman. I read it on the strength of the recommendation. I actually got the chance to thank Scott in person for that Cool. Uh, at a meetup about two months ago. Sweet. And I enjoyed the book so much that I wanted to be able to point friends to it. And it, it's not a huge book, but it's not something that you tell people to just read in an afternoon. So I thought I'd have an audio format. I know a lot of people who have jobs at a desk like me that give them some time to listen to things. So it's easier to say, work this into your podcast rotation mm -hmm. than, or uh, listen to this audiobook, then go read this. And I found when I searched, there was no audiobook. So I emailed, you decided to fix that. I emailed Friedman and I said, Hey, uh, would, would you have strong objections to this being released as a podcast? And the only condition that they insisted on was that the everyone be credited by chapter. There are, on, there are two, only two chapters in the book that aren't written by Friedman, but for that's, that's why almost all of the episodes begin with chapter whatever by David Friedman. It's just to, to hold to that commitment. Okay, neat. The name of the podcast is like, it was not intuitive to me. What was it again? The podcast, very different from ours. Okay, right, yes. It, it's as close as I could get to the title while still being readily adaptable to future projects, kind of like HPMOR podcast became the Methods of Rationality podcast. Yeah. Okay. You were you were thinking ahead. Yes. I wish I had done that. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I don't mind that it's HPMORpodcast.com, but forever it's going to be... Well, it's fine, because now the thing that's being done there is we want more. So again, HPMOR-focused. kind of circled back. Yeah. Actually, I, I want to say that as long as we're on the subject. As far as the origin of the podcast... Um, for I, I don't know exactly where the tipping point occurred, but it was partly you and partly uh, Jeremiah of both the Slate Star Codex podcast and We Are Not Saved, which I'll plug later, um, that uh, somewhere just sort of pushed a podcast from being, oh, this is too much of, like, this is a thing that other people do to, okay, this is something that I could sit down and, like, actually produce. Yeah, and anyone with a microphone can do. So, two things. One, Kevin Simler was the co-author of Elephant in the Brain. I don't know why I thought it was David Friedman. That name rings a bell, and I know I've, I'll have to figure out where I'm associating that from. And also, where can people find a podcast not like, or very different from our own? Because it's still not on the iTunes store where I can find it for my podcast app. I get home from Denver tonight, <laughs> and that will be literally the next thing I do podcast-related, even before I edit the episode that's coming out next week. Uh, currently, it's only on Google Play Podcasts and apparently hard to find even there. Hmm. Okay. So uh, you can, if you want to look for it, until I get the uh, pod, the put it into the, all the podcatchers or to the, the podcast like well, listing by the, services. By, by the time this comes out, uh, yeah, it'll be it, there, it should so. be up by the time this is by the time everybody hears this as the podcast very different from ours. If you still can't find it, I am on SoundCloud as GSV Bemusement Park. Cool, cool, perfect. So why did you want to make a podcast out of this particular book? The thing about it that's really refreshing, but and also leads to some of my small issues with the book, which we'll get to, is it's 
a pretty good legal overview that's not written by a legal scholar. It's written by an economist. So, and it, not not by a historian either, although he's and he's done some legal scholarship, obviously, and some history. But his focus is on, I guess, the, the meat of the matter when you're developing a legal system, which is it's supposed to constrain conflicts. And he looks at the incentives that these different legal systems create to constrain conflict and how they might be modulated by illegible ancient social factors or and to what, to what extent uh, a re- like a restriction that appears to be religious is actually enforced by convention. He talks about all of these things in a way that's really refreshing compared to discussion of legal systems by people in other disciplines, at least some of what I've read. Uh, in particular, I would compare, because they well, they actually both appear in both books, um, Murray Rothbard, another one of the Mises Institute uh, anarcho-capitalist economists, brings up both the Icelandic and Irish systems, which appear in uh, legal systems very different from ours, in his book, The Ethics of Liberty. The problem, I realized very quickly on reading Friedman's chapters, is that Rothbard stripped out any analysis of why these things worked and just sort of drooled over the fact that there was a seemingly functioning stateless legal system mm. so that he could make an argument that legal systems didn't depend on states. Mm-hmm. And empirically, they don't, which is the point of the book. One of the ways in which a legal system can be very different from ours is that either prosecution or enforcement is not done by the state. But the economic analysis of what's going on in the legal system is why these things are interesting and why they might have things we could learn from. And Rothbard didn't provide that, and Friedman does. Okay. So going real quick to the economic thing, because this sparked a thing in my head. I've only heard the first episode of your podcast so far. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I have it in my list now. But uh, the Chinese system, it seemed like one of the major goals of their legal system was to not have people use their legal system because it was expensive and they didn't have very many judges and people tended to like anything that went to the legal system kind of fucked both parties uh and i kind of get the feeling we have the same thing in america that uh anytime you go to the legal system it's going to be ruinously expensive even if you're in the right and is this a common thing among legal systems it's not common uh in fact in in feud systems in particular uh, in the the Romany legal systems and the in Icelandic law as it's described and Irish law to some extent and definitely Somali law, which I are I think the main feud systems the book covers. There may be one other that's eluding me right now. A feud system in a feud system, the thing that's backing the enforcement of law is the private application of force or the threat thereof. Hmm. The risk of escalating that is why the word feud has such unpleasant associations to our ears as moderns. So what the, the quote, court, end quote process in a feud legal system often functions to do is to get a bunch of people who aren't themselves party to the feud to publicly commit to a particular resolution of the feud hmm. so that there are major consequences above and beyond the, the risk that you take in the feud itself to, and to continuing to engage in the feud after an agreement, after a, an arbitration has been issued. Okay. Uh, to some extent, they even do this in, in the Amish system. Um, the Amish don't have a lot of crimes more serious than using a telephone. <laughs> but uh, they for the, the seri- for really serious ones, uh, they enforce all the congregations at some level will enforce some form of shunning. And one of the things that can be led that leads to shunning, uh, actually covered in both systems in my second episode, 
uh, the Romani and the Amish, is that refusing to accept a community settlement of a dispute will lead to that punishment of ostracism. Yeah. If you don't accept the community's judgment, you're out of the community. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fair. And and it's a really potent threat in the tightly knit communities that rely on this on this sort of communal decision making. Right. Um, the Romani have various quasi-religious beliefs about non-Romani that make it undesirable to be supremely undesirable to be exiled from Romani society. And the Amish are pretty deliberately uh, from birth, not trained to function in broader American society. So there aren't a lot of, it's going to be difficult even if it goes well. Yeah. Doesn't that make a lot of incentives for people to chase popularity then? Because if you're popular, people are more likely going to side with you in a dispute. There are def- It just kind of seems like a nightmare for any sort of the more introverted, you know, nerd type people to be in that kind of system. There's some risk to that, and uh, different feud systems dealt with it in different ways. Uh, the Icelandic system, which gets a lot of discussion in anarcho-capitalist circles generally, and in this book in particular, uh, dealt with it by making your claim, like your ability to issue to initiate a court proceeding for a particular claimed crime a transferable property. So if you accuse someone of stealing your stereo or your TV, you could take them to court yourself, and there's a, some agreed-on schedule of damages, or you could sell it to someone else who was better able to actually carry out the court proceeding. And this doesn't give you the status that would come from uh, going after, from successfully chasing down and knocking payment out of someone who committed a tort against you, but it's still pro-social in the sense that someone is profiting from the resolution of this dispute. The person who did the wrong thing is being punished, and that's that's a good. And it does lead to status on the part of the person who does the successful uh, prosecution. So there there's an incentive structure under this transferable tort system to uh, to pursue compensation for offenses, even if you're not yourself the offended party. Do you first have to prove that you were offended in that way? No, that's done at trial. <laughs> what you what you sell, as I understand it, is the right to make that claim in court. Huh, okay. So, and... Uh, oh. There's a really good example of how this could be used in modern law that I will bring up later when we get to that. But, yeah. Feud, feud systems have a lot of ways of encouraging that commitment and of making it desirable to go after uh, offenders like that. Okay. So just a couple high-level questions, because most of this is going right over my head, so I need to start from a higher place. Sure. R- Romani, are you saying Romani, uh, or like Roman style? Um, it's spelled R-O-M-A-N-I. They're not connected to the Romans or to Romania, and in their language, the emphasis is on the first syllable. Oh, okay. Interesting. And what what modern systems are of that style? Uh, um, you said, like, they're like what or, people... Normally referred to as gypsies in casual conversation, right? Yes. Okay. And See, the, the, I, I the, thought that was Roma, not Romani. I wasn't sure. I do not understand any of the languages or cultures involved well enough to explain the difference. Um, I know f- Rome, or just R-O-M, is a plural used sometimes. Roma is used sometimes seemingly interchangeably singular and plural. It may vary widely depending on the particular Romani offshoot that you're dealing with. Is the the language? It, they generally speak the the language of the society they live in with Romani with a lot of Romani loanwords mixed in, and they 
aren't a huge fan of having their languages or other aspects of their culture studied uh, for the most part. So I, I'm i actually going to read Anne Sutherland's book on uh, Vlach Rome, the Romanian uh, gypsy population in the U.S. Uh, after in the next couple of weeks because it sounds hugely interesting. But I, I don't understand the, the different Romani cultures well enough to explain why there are so many very close but distinct words for them. Gotcha. At least now I know what to Google. So, perfect. I saw about 10... 10 or 15 years ago, a movie with Brad Pitt where he played an Irish Roma or Romani person. It was, it was an interesting movie. Like, I think his part was sort of a, a side plot, but in the end you got sort of a feeling for how justice is done with these people. And it was like, okay, I guess for the most part, they don't get too involved, but when shit goes down, they really fucking take it seriously. Or at least, at least in that movie. There, there are, Let's see. There are three Romani groups covered in the book. The The Irish uh, Splinter are a fourth one that come to mind that the book doesn't discuss. They may either be very similar to the Roman Achal, the British Romani, or just not numerous enough to have been widely studied. I think the most interesting thing about the movie was that they had absolutely no faith or trust in the legal system of the country they were living in. And so they were basically an entirely separate legal system. And they knew they were breaking the laws of the land when they enforced their legal system, but they just didn't give a fuck because this was how it went down in their culture. The The three groups have different approaches to that. All of them are consistently mistrustful of uh, Gaja. That's everyone who's not Romani hmm. authority. And they go to a great good. They go as a civilization to astonishing lengths to avoid having it consistently enforced against them. But they have different approaches to how to the the. the ground level relations they have with those governments uh the kala the finnish romani are a very strictly nuclear society they're they're organized at the household level and nowhere below or above that they have a feud system that in practice mostly takes the form of when a feud breaks out um every member of each kin group on either side of the feud will avoid every member of the other presumably until some settlement is negotiated or just forever. Um, I just looked it up. The movie is called Snatch. Right on. Okay. The Kala are interesting because they don't have the sexual taboos of the other Romani groups. They have a much stronger sexuality taboo, hmm. which consists of denying the existence of human sexuality entirely. Oh, I heard about this. Probably in Scott's review. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, they they don't acknowledge act the... As far as I can tell from the description Friedman gives, and I'm going to read Grunfurst's account to uh, make sure that I've understood this correctly, they don't actually recognize any individual's parentage by any particular individual. And Like women just sometimes get pregnant and no one knows why. Oh, no, it's, 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 it's uh, much more off the wall than that. So if a couple wants to procreate, they are expected to leave the household that they live in, and then go someplace far enough that the woman's kin cannot find and retrieve the woman who's fled. They're supposed to stay there until, not just through the pregnancy, not just until birth, but until the child has been weaned so that it's no longer visibly connected with an individual mother. Mm. And then the woman's kin will smuggle the mother and child separately back into the household. And the man will be expected to show public penitence for violating the norms of his community and undergo some potentially expensive and painful purification rituals. That sounds 
uh, bizarre to me. Very and, different from our own system. And, and after that, the the child is expected to treat every woman of its mother's generation as equally co-parent. Neat. It sounds easier from the kid's point of view. Like if you if that's just what you're told. Yeah. Um, no it one sounds, tells you who your mom is, then it's like, all right, cool, you're all my mom. It but, sounds like an adaptation for uh, people with a high female mortality rate, at any rate, so that you aren't left motherless. It's, it, it definitely solves that. They're, they're taking, it takes a village all the way up to 11. Yeah. But what's, what's particularly cool about it, and thankfully quick to describe, is that they actually follow through to a considerable extent on the logical implications of their denial of sexuality. Other Romani groups have taboos associated with menstruation, like a lot of cultures do. The Kala don't, because if you had taboos associated with menstruation, you'd have to admit that menstruation was a thing that existed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they don't, yeah. because, you know, you... If it doesn't exist, you can't possibly enforce rules about it. Yeah. Uh, the the Vlach Rome are the largest of the groups. These are the, the Romanian-descended ones um, who have undergone a large diaspora since the abolition of serfdom in Romania. And they're the group that I think Friedman pays the most attention to. Uh, they're interesting because instead of completely avoiding uh, Gaja authority, they use it as a weapon amongst themselves. Uh, the Vlachrom, when they have a large-scale dispute, the sort of thing that you actually would feud over, they eventually settle it in a communal court, which is supposed to have, as judges or jury, uh, representatives of as many Romani families from as many Romani kinship groups as you can possibly get together at once, depending on the severity of the crime. And they can issue a final settlement, with a sentence up to and including exile from the Romani community, and additionally exiling anyone who refuses to accept that settlement. But they don't conduct their, like the, the procedure that leads up to a Chris, that's the, the Romany court proceeding, consists of a feud in which the participants try to manipulate their contacts in the non-Romany world to impose costs on each other. Hmm. Um, one of uh, Sutherland's informants mentions he was accused by uh, the, his uh, son's father-in-law Basically, they set up a deliberately non... They put the girl in this new marriage up to deliberately not consummating it so that they could then accuse the father of the new... of the late... of the, the recent groom of uh, trying to go after her instead. And this is a really serious offense in Romani culture for a man to make advances against his son's wife. Hmm. So he, tell, he, he knows that the girl has picked someone's pocket before and can prove it. And he knows other issues, other, apparently other legal issues that the father might have. And his way of prosecuting this feud uh, before it goes to the Romany court is to convince the police or to just get the police to arrest them both and cost them a lot of trouble and money. Okay. Um, in, in other situations, you might say, talk to the, 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 the leader of a Romany community you might talk to the truant officer or the welfare officer in order to delay qualification for benefits get extra visits to where the parents have to contend with a righteously indignant truant officer. They, yeah, their, their feud prosecution leading up to the court takes the form of manipulating non-Romany to annoy each other or otherwise inconvenience them. So it sounds kind of like what rich people do when they're suing not rich people in the United States, yeah. where it's just like, I'm going to make life hard for you. You know, like, um, 
oh, who's a good example? Uh, someone comes to mind. Donald Trump, for example. <laughs> uh, he had that guy write that book about him that he thought was going to be all glowing and nice. And the guy published that because uh, then he get, then Donald gave him access to all of his records. And like, oh, yeah, by all means, gloat about me. And he published that his net worth was something like 150 to $250 million. Oh. And so Donald Trump sued him for $5 billion, which would have made him worth $5.2 billion afterwards. Um, and this was expensive. Trump ended up, what was it? What do you call it when you like cancel a lawsuit? Drop. Yeah. He dropped the suit after a while. Um, but slap suits, uh, let's see. Strategic lawsuit against public participation. Yes, yeah. thank you. There was a good episode of um, John Oliver's show on that just a couple weeks ago, which yeah. we should put in the show notes. If you want to be, it's funny. I I love that show, John Oliver's thing. If you if you want to laugh and feel indignant about something, in all at the same time in twenty minutes, it's great. Yeah. And it he can do things. I know this isn't really related, but on whatever random topic, and it's like, oh, I I should really be pissed about that. Like trailer parks, for example, or mobile home parks. Yeah. Like the 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 shadiness involved in owning the land and what they do to raise prices and how they they basically ring out the people who live there is nuts and it's not the kind of thing that you would even be aware of mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah the slap suit one was fun yeah. the only other thing i can think of because I, I don't know a lot about um I'm, I'm more just learning that's why i'm being so quiet but there was um there's a blog i've been reading called pro safe folk um that is kind of like when scott alexander does like an analysis of like um here's some medical thing or whatever. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, all that confusing mumbo jumbo, like here's what's actually going on from a medical perspective. Mm -hmm. This is that, but with legal stuff. Oh, cool. And so like, I think one of the first couple of posts was on um, that cake shop in the Colorado area who refused to sell to gay people. And then um, they challenge, then like they countersued saying your religion's garbage and it's making, making you act like this and he's like hey you guys can't sue me on my religious garbage you have to do, you know do it for some other reason and so it it takes like an objective like you know forget where you stand on the the um the fairness and and uh morality of this but like what what legally is going on here it's kind of fun so we should put a link to that too i just took a note down i actually i have them already to send over so perfect awesome. teamwork yeah the the slap example you bring up is a good one uh several of the chapters do focus on uh, systems that recognize the risk of what we moderns call vexatious litigation and have different means of dealing with it. In the imperial Chinese system, uh, self-consciously lawful evil though it is, mm-hmm. uh, though it was, um, if you made a false accusation of some crime or other, um, you would receive the penalty that would have been imposed on the defendant if found guilty. I think that's a really good thing to have in general. They they took it in a weird direction, though, because the, the risk of that is obvious, mm-hmm. especially if you go after a high-status person who might just be able to ride their status to an acquittal. That's a big problem. So you might avoid that risk by making the accusation anonymously. And the uh, Qing dynasty, at least, dealt with this problem of anonymous accusations in a very straightforward way. For a magistrate to read an anonymous accusation in court was a criminal offense. And for the person who submitted it, it was a capital offense. Okay. They had a lot of capital offenses. Although one of the things the chapter focuses on is how many things they insisted on making death sentences for and then walking them back to something slightly more reasonable. Yeah. I, I That was the, the chapter that I listened to. I found it was really interesting that they seemed more concerned with like a karmic balance to the universe than justice necessarily. I think the example that... Uh, 
you read out into uh, that you written on the podcast was if a group of people like committed a crime and one of them was sentenced to death for it but then someone else in the group managed to die before he was executed then that execution was commuted because you know a death has been dealt for this crime there, by the universe yeah there's been a life for a life yeah that, it's well that sounds really hard to manipulate to, to your benefit right <laughs> yeah <laughs> just kill your co-conspirator yeah yeah so th- there were a lot of death sentences the imperial system issued that would end up being commuted either to a couple of years at hard labor or an unpleasant beating with a weighted piece of bamboo uh-huh. yeah that was that was really interesting. I, I'm wondering, so all of these are very interesting, and I look forward to hearing about all of them. Is there additional benefit besides the fun of hearing something interesting uh, about different legal systems? So Friedman uh, mentions, Friedman will frequently contrast the way a given legal system does a particular thing against the way that we do it now. And he'll mention in particular when something comes up that just seems absolutely bizarre um, when it's, it's done a particular way. Um, I, the book gave me a serious case of cultural relativism for about a week and a half when I, the first time I read it, I mostly got over that in particular. I think Friedman may be giving, uh, Sharia a bit too much credit Mm -hmm. in his chapter on it, but there's more to than just the specific institutions in that knowing that there are other ways to do things leaves you a lot better equipped to optimize. And there is an entire chapter at the end of the book. Um, dedicated to specific things that Friedman thinks we might be able to learn from in the uh, in the current legal system from these ancient ones. So uh, that obviously is the question, are there things you think that weird legal systems use that uh, we would be well advised to incorporate into ours? I think that the, the biggest one and the one that anarcho-capitalists bring up most often, I think, is the transferable tort model that the Icelandic system used. Do we not have that? I, I know you can sell debt to other people to collect it. You can't sell the right to initiate a court proceeding. Okay. That what you there is one exception, which as Scott actually brought up in his review of the book as the best example of a way that you could improve on the existing system uh, this way. So in the in the status quo, if you work for an evil big box retailer who which no point in naming um, <laughs> that just cuts an hour off of everyone's timesheet every paycheck for a year. And they employ a million people. If you're paying bi-weekly, by the end of the year, they've stolen 26 million man-hours of labor, yeah. which at the prevail- at the current U.S. minimum wage is somewhere in the neighborhood of $180 million. Okay. But it's spread across a million people, and no one is going to take the evil big box retailer to court for $180. Yeah. And there are a lot of uh, issues in our current, just in modern society like this, which is why we have class actions. Mm-hmm. If you... We, the class action exists because we don't want a situation where committing sufficiently small crimes against a sufficiently not large number of people will let you get away with a large payday and no risk of punishment. And so in, a, in, the, in our class action system, some enterprising lawyer who learns of the existence of this large-scale, low-intensity wrong will go into a court and get himself appointed as attorney for the class. Yeah. And the, the judge just says, all right, you are allowed to represent everyone who had their money stolen by this retailer uh, in the form of wage theft during this period. Yeah. And because you want to transfer other sorts of rights than that, right? What the class action does effectively is transfer the tort. Okay. As once, and that, that's actually one of the bad parts of the, of the existing system. So you'd like it if like individual people could transfer a tort from one to another. Right. Okay. So... In the, to, to use the class action example to make it a little bit clearer what's happening at scale, 
Uh, in the status quo, the lawyer would go out and get appointed attorney for the class, and he'd go to the evil big box retailer and say, uh, I have the right to sue you for compensation for 26 million hours of stolen wages. I'm also in charge of negotiating the settlement, so I want half a million dollars and give everyone else a $25 coupon to TGI Fridays. Okay. And this isn't this isn't expressly illegal. I suppose a judge could, in theory, object to the settlement. I don't know how often it happens. But there is a serious principal agent problem because the the lawyer, the class action attorney can get his payday regardless of how good a deal he gets for the victims of the large scale wrong. Yeah. In the Icelandic system, you would have to get from individual victims the right to pick up their compensation. So if you found out there were a million people uh, subject to this problem, you might, as the as someone who wished to litigate the case with the big box retailer, send out a bunch of mailers that say, hey, we understand that you worked for this evil big box retailer and uh, over the year of 2019 and had 26 hours of wages approximately stolen from you. This is something you should be compensated for, but we totally understand that you're not going to go to court for half a paycheck. Mm -hmm. So instead, we'll give you 90% of that value if you send us back this mailer that says we're authorized to collect the money from the retailer. And then once you've assembled a big pile of we have you have the right to collect this money from the retailer, you go to the evil big box with a big stack of forms, say, these are the 792,000 people who've authorized me to collect 26 stolen hours of pay from you. The In this case, unlike the present system, the victims have necessarily accepted the settlement they're eventually getting, mm -hmm. 90% of the value of the stolen money, and the attorney is getting his payday. Mm -hmm. But you, an attorney wouldn't go after a class action in this system without a without a strong belief in the probability of success or the uh, the the fraction of eventual compensation offered to the people you were buying the the claim from would have to be much lower yeah so I, I think it's an opportunity to make to get some spurious litigation out of the market and make this market for justice more efficient uh, it, it's the single biggest thing I would take away from the book okay is there anything more? esoteric and weird that you would like to have incorporated the athenian system uh seems to have been crafted by a team of bunny ears lawyers check tv tropes folks um can you quickly tell us what a bunny ears lawyer is someone who's more than a little bit unhinged uh but his antics are tolerated because he's demonst he's absurdly good at okay. his particular task okay um in the case of the Athenian system, there's a bunch of stuff that's outright amusing to hear, but actually sounds like it would work as a way of addressing real legal issues. Um, for example, the so if you had something stolen from you in the Athenian legal system, you could bring a case to against the person you thought stole it, and in the course of that case, you could search their house and try to recover your property. Now, in the modern legal system, if law enforcement just comes barging in, we might be, without a warrant, we might be concerned that they were planting drugs in order to be able to arrest you. The Athenians were concerned that you might bring your own property into a house in order to plant it, provide, have unimpeachable evidence, recovering it in the search that this person had stolen it, and then be able to collect the value of the property, the property itself, and compensatory damages. Mm -hmm. The Athenians dealt with this problem in a shockingly and amusingly straightforward way. <laughs> You can search the house of someone you're accusing at theft, but you have to strip naked on, at the front door yeah. so that you can't be you can't have anything palmed or up your sleeve or otherwise concealed uh, that you'd be able to plant. 
That's I pretty awesome. I could live awesome. with that. I mean, well, I guess <laughs> I got to think of the ramifications of that before I wholeheartedly agree. So the downside is that some naked dude could could just come knock on my door and walk in and say I'm here <laughs> to search no, there, there's, everything. There's an actual. The, the, they had an actual court system. This would occur as part of a, a prosecution that you were bringing. But presumably, it would still be a surprise to have them at your door. Otherwise, if you knew they were coming, you could hide the stolen goods. Or the, the, the allegedly stolen goods. That is not clear from my reading on the subject. Um, a lot of what's known about the Athenian legal system actually comes from the detailed accounts of speeches at court that are given in Greek theater, right. which, which assume that the reader's familiar with procedure. So it describes the procedure as if you'd be familiar with it. Yeah. And you can you can sort of feel out the edges of their legal system from that. Just like I don't, no one knows how ancient people saluted. Right. Now, I don't know exactly how... I don't know where in the in the the Athenian court proceeding for theft the strip naked and search would fall, but they were pretty big on nudity. Like you had to do the Olympics in the nude too, so that you were you were um you know visibly of the sex that you claimed you were. And you didn't I have imagine. like guys dressing up as girls to win the 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 women's ten thousand meter or whatever. There was a great South Park episode on that that just came out, but um well great if you if you can tolerate south park humor yeah. but i still i still have to think that the like if, if if the if my accuser who i didn't know was out there until they called and said hey detective and i will be by sometime or sometime tomorrow between 3 and 6 p.m um I, I think what happens is you probably like have someone knock on your door pull you into court and then you have to defend yourself and then they can do the search after I, I guess ha having not trafficked in stolen goods, I'm not really sure how this would work, but I, I'm just thinking that if I had a heads up, I would move them out of my house, right? There might not be that many places you can move things in ancient Greece. Yeah, that's and that's that's a possibility. And, and and also, if you're aware of that risk, you could hire a couple of people to watch the house, and that would just be part of the compensation that the thief eventually owed if you caught them. Yeah. Um, there is another uh, really... Friedman calls Athenian law the work of a mad economist, and the best example is one that he ends the chapter with. Um, can we put in like a skip ahead to spoiler? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, right now, if you want to not get the spoiled for you, uh, skip ahead by three minutes. Uh, two should be plenty. Okay. Okay, so uh, the Athenians had, in addition to regular taxes, a system for producing public goods that they called the liturgy. And the liturgy consisted of city officials coming around to some group of the ex-richest people in Athens every other year and saying something like, uh, hey, guess who's sponsoring the Olympic team that we're sending to Sparta this year? Mm -hmm. Or uh, look at that shiny new trireme down at the docks. Guess who gets to pay the salaries of the crew this year mm -hmm. and be captain? This was, I think it's actually a pretty cool way of uh, progressivizing the tax burden and guaranteeing public good production uh, despite the vagaries of a legislature. Yeah. But the, the way that you got out of it when the city officials showed up, they would tell you that you were paying for whatever, and you could pay it on the spot. You could uh, show that you had already been consulted this year about performing a liturgy or had done one last year. Or you could refer to the city's attention someone richer than you <laughs> who had not done a liturgy last year and was not doing one this year. Hmm. Now, this presents a problem because you can't really tell in a society where there are no uh, – in a society with no property tax records, no real estate listings, nothing, it can be really hard to tell if you're richer than me. And the Athenian solution to this, and the reason that we're spoiling this, is the way that you did it. The way that you prove someone is richer than you 
is to offer to exchange on the spot all of your property for all of their property. <laughs> if they accept, then you've either made an expensive mistake <laughs> if they're actually poorer than you, yeah. which is an incentive not to do this recklessly. Mm-hmm. Or if they're richer than you, then you've just gotten a bunch of free money and can now pay for the liturgy that you were previously unwilling to. Cool. Either that or they refuse, thus signaling that they are in fact richer. In which case they are immediately, they are required to pay for whatever the city was going to ask you to do. Cool. That was, I see, I feel like if you wanted to start switch stuff with me, I guess if it included accounts, then maybe I'd be okay with it. But if it was just all the stuff, like I like my stuff, that's why it's my stuff. And I'm pretty sure it would include all your holdings, like yeah. the mines like, that you have real, off in De- De- Dacia or wherever. Yeah. Real property, at least like the, even real property. If you're talking about the 300 richest people in Athens, which was a pretty unequally distributed society. Um, you're probably dealing with people who do have remote holdings, but these will either be known or difficult to conceal. And dude, the inequality in wealth in the ancient world was crazy. At the height of the Roman emperor's power, he controlled literally more than half the uh, of all wealth in the Roman empire. And like, like a fifth of the entire world. Yeah. But one person with literally half the wealth. That's, I mean... In the U.S., we make like fourteen trillion a year GDP. That would be like if one person made seven and a half trillion every single year. Hmm. That's fucking nuts. Jeff Bezos says I'm not there yet, but growth <laughs> mindset. Yeah, that does the number <laughs> I was trying to think of was all right. How close are we to that? Distribution's different now because there's more people working and there's more money involved altogether. It's but it's so radically that's, that's, more equal than the, the past was. Although I have seen an estimate that the Gini coefficient, the standard econometric of inequality is actually higher in the u.s now than at some important period in roman history so yeah there's that to consider it was one of the fun things when reading up about the ancients that yeah the liturgy thing that you were talking about and oftentimes it wasn't even like a thing that was required and imposed by the state it was just the rich people were expected to as part of the the um the society's worshiping of the gods, I guess, is to throw big feasts and to basically spend a lot of money on the public. And that would that was part of like, you know, you got respect and you got prestige as a person by doing this. But you also used a lot of your wealth to help pay for food or for clothes for people that were really poor. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a shitty system because it also only makes sure that uh, public projects that are visible get funded. Like... Um, aqueducts might if your name was attached to them but something less less visible than that didn't get that much uh didn't get that much funding but still it was it was i thought it was neat that like the richer you were the more you were expected to contribute back to society as as part of their religion even (laughs) yeah yeah exactly how far through the book are you right now Uh, i've got uh, i think seven episodes out of a planned 12 up right now the eighth one i'm hoping to finish this week uh with voices provided by one of the discorders and that'll hopefully go up today's the 17th um yeah that'll hopefully go up on the 24th um i've been trying to stick to a two-week production i tried to initially to stick with a one-week production schedule um i this became untenable and then it occurred to me that i was doing an episode twice the length of a typical hpmor podcast episode at twice the frequency Mm -hmm. and i understood with that sense of scale why this might not be sustainable yeah why you were feeling overwhelmed so i walked the schedule back to two weeks i had some trouble meeting that although one of the uh discorders actually uh the hobo demon the one who's uh appearing in this upcoming episode edited the last one together for me 
uh, to help keep it from getting too far off schedule. Thank you for that, Hobo Demon. Which one, uh, which legal system is this one going to be? Uh, the one that's coming up this week is going to be uh, Plains Indian Law, okay. the Comanche, Kiowa, and Cheyenne, and a general overview of uh, feud law systems, of which the Plains Indians are one example. Uh, the Romani, the Icelanders, the Somalis uh, all have their own takes on that system. And Islamic and Jewish law both show signs of having been developed from systems like that, uh, where private force and individual vindication of your rights is the way that things are done. Before we wrap this up, uh, before we started the episode, you were telling me something about how uh, what great lengths uh, was gone through in Jewish law to to make it look like their God was enforcing the law when he really wasn't? Uh, that's uh, not exactly. So no. the, <laughs> there's a whole chapter on the issues with religious legal systems. And one of them is he, he actually kind of lumps U.S. constitutional law in this category. Oh, um, neat. So we have, in theory, in Jewish, Islamic, and U.S. constitutional law, a single unchangeable source of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, the constitution's not written on stone tablets, but it's treated as if it were. And this is a really serious problem when you, when the society changes to a sufficient degree from the one in which the law code was written down, uh, to make some institutions suboptimal or when you need to add prohibitions that God didn't think to include. (laughs) And so in, in Jewish law in particular, uh, the, the, First solution to this problem that they hit on is very, very broad interpretation. Uh, the the rabbis over the centuries developed some very elaborate rules by which to construe the meaning of the Torah on the basis of some other doctrines. Uh, the oral Torah is the the main one uh, to defend interpretations of the pent of the Torah that you could not plausibly derive from the actual language of the text because there is an oral Torah, which includes correct interpretations of the Torah by which you can modify this sort of thing. Oh, neat. Um, they, they also over time established some communal, like the, the, for the 2000 years after the destruction of the almost 2000 years after the destruction of the temple until Israel was established, uh, the Jewish community was like the, the global Jewish community was a bunch of separated populations living under non-Jewish authority, usually allowed to enforce their own law. And the religious legal system was not ideal for everything. So the secular Jewish community authorities developed the authority to promulgate uh, new rules themselves. Uh, I think the sort of consensus they settled on was that the secular authorities could forbid what the Torah permitted, but not for, or not forbid what it required or permit what it forbade. So the only thing that struck me as uh, confusing there was that the United States Constitution, at least in idealistically and historically, isn't treated like stone tablets because it, it's expl- it's a, the rules for changing it are expressed in it. I actually absolutely understand what he's saying. The way we treat it as a society is very much like a oh, yeah. holy Pe- document. People treat it like a holy document, but but it doesn't have in there, you can't change this, this is the final word, it has the opposite. No, but uh, like the Second Amendment, the, the right to bear arms thing, it has... The it's arms like they sa- had at the time are so different that it doesn't really apply nowadays, so they've had to interpret it in what they thought the founders originally meant, you know, which... How could you possibly know? It's very much a sort of trying to interpret the word of your God to apply to modern situations thing. Uh, that I don't think, though, is the main parallel that Friedman draws. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jewish law in, uh, over time allowed 
had methods by which you could add rules that were completely not part of religious law or that were absurd stretches of the text that you could still claim were completely in compliance with it. If effectively, and there actually is a story in the Talmud where it's basically established that uh, divine, religi religious truth is a matter for God to decide, but the law has been explicitly entrusted to the care of humans. Okay. And the law is in this effectively whatever the rabbis agree it is. Um, Post-New Deal Supreme Court, uh, in particular, well, Caroline Products, U.S. versus Caroline Products is one example. Uh, Wickard versus Filburn is the more famous one, where the court held that feeding your own cows on your own farm, wheat that you yourself grew on your own farm, counted as interstate commerce yeah. because it could affect the interstate wheat market. Mm -hmm. um, effectively, at that point, we've the court decided that constitutional law is what the Supreme Court says it is. And the, the Islamic law uh, over time developed the same institutions. The Ottoman Empire had a sort of, uh, par had they had secular laws and a lot of religion-adjacent uh, proceedings that were either conspicuously different from or outright contradictory to Quranic law. Uh, the Quran explicitly prohibits loans at interest, and the Ottoman secular law stipulates a maximum interest rate. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the religious laws... As far as I can tell, Friedman doesn't say it, but this uh, the law is whatever the interpretive authority decides it is seems to be a very common attractor for legal systems that are viewed as discovered uh, in a religious sense rather than created. Okay, cool. Yeah, that, that tracks. I can follow that, especially the way that we... I mean, constitutional scholars will bicker on what this exactly meant. It sound, it's, it's, strikes me as hideously analogous to interpreting the Bible. Um, okay, yeah. That there, and that this one is quick. There's another simple parallel he draws between uh, Islamic law and the Constitution. If uh, a law professor is talking about what, what's constitutional, then he's talking about whatever the Supreme Court says the Constitution says. Yeah. And if a judge is saying this is constitutional or this isn't, he is in theory measuring it, measuring it against some platonic ideal of constitutional interpretation, trying to get what the actual intention out of it. Whereas the law professor just cares about what the court ends up deciding. Um, Islamic law has Sharia, the divine legal code that's actually laid out in the Quran and studied. And it has fiqh, uh, jurisprudence, the actual human legal institutions and the rules deduced from the Quran. Uh, the law professor is talking about, about fiqh and the judge is talking about Sharia to, to go with that analogy. I recall hearing that uh, there is no actual right to privacy in the Constitution laid out explicitly. Uh, it's been interpreted back into it. That's, yeah, that, that sounds reasonable. It's a sort of logical extension of a lot of Fourth and Fifth Amendment case law, mm -hmm. but it's the word privacy isn't found anywhere. Um, this is one of the things that your civics textbook will mention about, for example, the Roe v. Wade ruling, yeah. which mentions a right to privacy that's not there. I don't disagree with the conclusion, but it's pretty obvious that they're not going to the text for the meaning. So. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So real quick again, where can people find this podcast? Uh, I will be putting it up on the iTunes store. It's currently on Google Play Podcasts, and I'll try to get it up on Stitcher and the others as the podcast very different from ours. If you still can't find it at the time that you're listening to this, I am on SoundCloud as GSV Bemusement Park. Excellent. And I will include a link to the SoundCloud at the very least and see if I can find the one to the Google Play and the iTunes when they're available. Awesome. Uh, with that being said, do we want to move on?
Yeah, that was awesome. Okay. By the way, I, I I didn't contribute much because I was mainly just it was like yeah, uh, it was like it a yeah a lecture, which not that sounds well to us. It's not pejorative. To others, it might be. That was awesome. So thank you. I yeah. think this will be really interesting for people. It's the book was a blast to read, and the process of podcasting it has I've learned a lot from I mean, about podcasting and also about the content from it. I strongly recommend it as a read, even if you're not the sort of person who listens to podcasts, but those people probably won't hear it, hear <laughs> me saying this. And as you were saying, uh, podcasting, not quite as terribly hard as people think. It is a thing that you, the listener, can do if there's something you're passionate about. Yeah, every single person in this room has done it, so. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Uh, we are moving on to less wrong posts. Yeah, sounds great. The first less wrong post we have this week is the virtue of narrowness. This is a post about basically going back to how your beliefs should constrain what you are going to experience. And uh, he starts out by saying that, well, he, he gives a number of examples. The One of the examples I got was that specialists know much more about their speciality than uh, people out in the public. Like a, a car repair person knows the difference between a carburetor and a distributor and would not refer to them both just as car parts, unlike me, who would. I'd be like, I need a new part for my car. <laughs> the old one is broken. He says, a janitor does not wipe the floor with window cleaner, even if the bottles look similar to one who has not mastered the art. Outside their own professions, people often commit the misstep of trying to broaden a word as widely as possible to cover as much territory as possible. It seems undemocratic and exclusionary and elitist and unholistic to call some pebbles diamonds and others not. It seems narrow-minded. I think the point of the post is... This is a case where we really want to be narrow-minded. Um, the The problem with not using narrow categories is that they lead you into other specific errors. Um, Scott's non-central fallacy is probably the best example. Yeah. The word is that, is that the worst argument ever? Yes. Yeah. 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 Like Which the, we, we should paraphrase because that's it's wonderful. Like Nelson Mandela and and Martin Luther King are both criminals in the sense that they did things that were illegal under the legal system they lived in. And so is the person who breaks into your house and steals all your stuff. Mm -hmm. The non-central fallacy and the, the reason that we want to be narrow occurs when you use this broad category to, when you fail to narrow the category of criminal enough that you're applying to Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King, the same emotional reaction that the guy who breaks into your house and steals stuff uh, generates yeah because so, they're both criminals yeah yeah right. when we think of criminals we think about that awful person that we hate because he stole our stuff and so when someone says martin luther king was a criminal they're trying to make you feel that same way about martin luther king even though he's not an example of what most people think of when they think of the word criminal no and he and he's not a negative example of things that you should avoid doing uh, that like as a moral matter you should avoid doing because they're crimes like, we, we try ideally we would have a legal system that captured most or all of what was actually wrong to do and not anything else. And then criminal would be a useful descriptor that's not misusable in this fashion. But since it's not, we have to be narrow enough to recognize when we're... It, I, what I get from this is that it's important to recognize the domain in which you're thinking about a category when you start using category terms. Yeah. I, I think he points out that it's it's very good to have more narrow categories because... While you could take all a bunch of pebbles and say they're all pebbles, there are certain things that tie the ones that you call diamonds together. They have, you know, a different refractive index. They, uh, they, they have things in common with them that they don't have in common with other pebbles. 
And so, yeah, someone else could be like, well, they're all pebbles, man. Stop being so elitist. But on the other hand, drawing those categories and narrowing things down gives you information. It lets you make more predictions about the world and maybe even use the resources that you have in a better way once you're using diamonds for things that only diamonds can be used for. I could just imagine someone trying to make that argument in a like in a sense with actual um, application. I mean, oh, it's all metal, man. And mm. you're like, yeah, but we're trying to we're trying to wire a circuit board here. We, we're not going to use uh, aluminum, right? Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm not an expert, but it's just it's like, yes, there's I, it's hard. I, I can't this. It's, it's hard to imagine even a fake argument of this happening in real life when there's two people disagreeing about what to actually do. Mm-hmm. But what he's doing in the post is saying, yes, that's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. Like if, if there's real anticipate if there's real experiences that you're trying to in the in the lingo of the book if if you're trying to constrain actual outcomes and i'm blanking on the word but yeah that's the point yes (laughs) yes you would would never i don't think there's any context in which you would it would be remotely helpful to lump uh copper and mercury together under the label of metal yeah (laughs) anything you try to use copper for mercury is going to be profoundly unhelpful for that's a much better example perfect they can both conduct electricity though yeah but you you couldn't use copper very well in a mercury switch no you could not uh i i like the he also makes the comment in here that this leads to some people especially like the the far out hippie types being like everything's connected man it's everything's one and he says that okay yeah sure maybe but a fully connected graph with an edge between every two vertices (laughs) conveys the same amount of information as a graph with no edges at all the important graphs are the ones where some things are connected and some things are not connected i think i misread that but basically yeah that's yeah you with on a on a completely connected graph you can't tell what the right path to follow is yeah if you've got some disconnections if you've got five points and all four of them are connected to the fifth, but not to each other, knowing that fifth point, knowing, having information about that fifth point on the graph is going to tell you a great deal more than anything you'd ever learn looking at the connected graph. Yeah. He ends this with, the important categories are the ones that do not contain everything in the universe. Good hypotheses can only explain some possible outcomes and not others. There's nothing wrong with focusing your mind, narrowing your categories, excluding possibilities, and sharpening your propositions. Really, there isn't. If you make your words too broad, you end up with something that isn't true and doesn't even make good poetry. Yeah, to, to mix his other metaphors, your sharp, category di- your sharp category distinctions will help you carve reality at the joints. Yeah. I'm just picturing a graph with everything connected to everything, and it's just a black square. Compared that to no graph, where it's just a white square. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Either one isn't going to help you at all. Right. I, I feel bad moving on so fast, because I agree with him so much. Is there anything... Do we have things that we can disagree with this about? Uh, honestly, I feel like it's one of those ones that... It's not really even a disagreement, but it's not an introductory post, maybe. This this has a lot of kind of presumed understanding. But, yeah, I mean, if you have that, then no, it's great. I think it's succinct. It makes a point, and it does so in his in only the way that Eliezer could <laughs> i kind of like the fact that he called it narrow-minded mindedness uh i'm often remembered of the old 40 warhammer 40k quote that uh a, a open mind is like a fortress with its gates wide open <laughs> uh the 40k universe is a very dark universe where they everyone has a strong vested interest in controlling your thoughts 
Um, so a lot of their sayings are things that we would recoil in horror from. But on the other hand, I do, I do sometimes, you know, run up against people who are like, oh, God, just yesterday I walked past a conversation where someone was saying like, but everything was energy in the beginning, man. All particles are just energy. Like I was walking by and I could hear this and someone was like protesting something about physics. And she was like, but metaphysics is bigger than physics. And I was like, wow, I'm so glad I'm not involved in this. (laughs) And that, that is what I think of when I think of people who are like, you're so narrow minded, man. I'm like, yeah, there's some things that, you know what? I just, I'm not going to accept. And uh, I think I have a darn good reason for that because Sometimes it's good to have distinct individual categories that actually mean things. In the words of Carl Sagan, it's it's good to be open-minded, but not so open-minded your brain falls out. Yeah. Or alternatively, in the words of Inquisitor Ravener, if we're quoting 40K, mm-hmm. chaos claims the unwary and the incomplete. A true man may flinch away from its embrace if he is stalwart and girds his soul with the armor of contempt. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What's that one from? Uh, that's from Gaunt's Ghosts. Okay. Uh, gives its title to like the seventh or eighth book. Cool. Now that we are on board with censorship and not allowing people to think free thoughts, let's move on to You Can Face Reality, which is a very short post. Uh, so we can just read it in its entirety right now. I feel like I can handle this one. Let's go for it. This is also called the Litany of Gendlin. Mm-hmm. Um, what is true is already so. Owning up to it doesn't make it worse. Not being open about it doesn't make it go away. Because it is true, it is what is there to be interacted with. Anything untrue isn't there to be lived. People can stand what is true, for they're already enduring it. It's written in the form of a poem. Uh, I don't know if it was originally written that way, but if nothing else, Eliezer reinterpreted it that way. So what's this mean, basically? What I always took it to mean is that you shouldn't look away from things because you're worried about finding out the truth. Like, specifically, sometimes people are like, I don't want to go in and get this test at the doctor because I don't want to know if I have cancer. That was the example I was going to use. Okay, okay. And I'm always like, you know, whether you have cancer or not, you already have it or don't. Your your knowledge of that isn't going to change the fact of the matter. Right. It could change other facts, like how you live the rest of your life or something. But it's, especially if you take truth as a virtue, then it's better to know and not than to not know. know. Finding, uh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you can, you can, you can actually make better decisions based off of what you learn, where sitting in your uncertainty doesn't help you at all. Or uh, finding out that you have STDs is not what makes you a risk for spreading them. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. that's a really good distillation of it. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I get uh, reading this, I, the sense that I, I get from this one and the last one together is that it's directed to at least some extent specifically uh, at religious thought. Huh. The... It's all evolution, man. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we're entitled to reject. Because we reject Dar- uh, Darwinian evolution, we're also entitled to reject uh, the entire co- like physical cosmology of the universe that's assembled by a completely different means, and also quantum mechanics, because we describe both of those systems as also evolving, even though the evolving has nothing in common. Mm-hmm. We have one word that is broadly used and that forms an excuse. I think a lot of times people don't want knowledge because commonly in society if you don't know something that absolves you of responsibility like if you didn't know that it was against the rules to do something in a particular place well the first time you make that mistake they let you off the hook so if you don't know that you have an std you can't be morally morally culpable for spreading it and i think i think that is a problem with society in general people should be held negligible held responsible for when they're negligent i've brought up the example of um 
what was that Clifford's argument uh, about the sea captain? Yes. About not wanting to investigate whether or not his boat was seaworthy. Right. Because if he didn't know that it's not seaworthy, you know. Then it's not in my hands clean. Yeah. Yeah. But Clifford argues that no, they're not. Yeah. 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 I think the bright line here is once you've even, once that choice is even something that you know about as a possibility, uh, responsibility has attached to you. And uh, you're not going to scrub that off, even if your response is to ignore the fact that you have the choice. That's, in fact, that's about as I would argue it's almost as bad, not quite as bad, but almost as bad as knowing the bad outcome of the test and going ahead and acting as if you hadn't received it. Yeah. The, the part of this that gives me Hermione and her methods of rationality has a panic attack like this, where like, what else am I missing out on? Mm-hmm. And she freaks out and goes to McGonagall and stuff, and um. The, you know, so like I, I try to be mindful of if my, you know, to take the sea captain analogy, you know, is, is my car safe? Um, but what are the questions I'm not asking that if I thought to ask them, I could prevent something bad from happening. Yeah. And uh, I don't know of a refined way to go about figuring those things out. I, right? I, I, I yeah. Because you don't know what the dark areas to look into are. Yeah. You're not even, it, it, sometimes you, sometimes you do maybe, but if you don't. Um, two bits of the Jewish law thing that are actually briefly relevant to that. Um, Maimonides says in the Talmud that in order for uh, religi- for Jewish religious law to impose capital punishment, uh, the defendant must have been told by two separate people immediately before the offense that it was to be that it was punishable by death, and then done it anyway. And there has to be a witness to has having been told this. What? That's that is that is the the depth of. Uh, of so b- right before you're going to murder someone two different people have to tell you you know you could get executed if you murder this guy mm-hmm. yeah in, or, in order for, for the death penalty to be imposed wow um the amount of the the degree to which the uh these religious requirements are added to and hedged around um like the stoning of the disobedient son in chapter four uh, is one of the things that friedman brings up as an attractor in religious law and it, it occurred to me as an example but uh the the other one relevant to the what questions am i not asking um, this, I think, is the root of the reasonable person standard. This is what the reasonable person standard in yeah. common law and other systems is supposed to embody. Uh, in Jewish law, I think this falls under the the grazing ox tort category, okay. um, or the the goring ox. Oh. If you took reasonable precautions and the ox isn't known to be an angry thing that gores other animals then you aren't liable for full damage for the full value of the injury if it gores another animal because it was an unknown risk. Uh, if the ox has gored before, you're liable for the full extent of damages, but you're responsible in any case. If you took what should have been reasonable precautions, um, and the, the we move to the, the fire category of torts, hazards that spread. If you're responsible for the circumstances under which the fire occurs, and you took reasonable precautions, then you're not liable. If you didn't take reasonable precautions, you're liable for the full amount of damages, period. And even if you took reasonable precautions... If you did it on someone else's property, even with their permission, so that you're not the primary, immediate, probable victim of anything going wrong, you're also liable for the full amount of damages. Oh, so it's nice that there's legal understanding of that, but just as 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 a person, I want to be better than reasonable, right? Yeah. So like, um, fire puts me in mind of, if I didn't know, for example, that grease fires were different from other kinds of fire, and I'm cooking at Inyash's house, and the 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 oil that i'm cooking on the stove suddenly bursts into flame what historically works really good for fire right i grab grab a big bucket of water and i throw it on it (laughs) and then suddenly i splashed fire throughout the kitchen and i burned your house down Uh i mean so i might be legally 
safe there because, you know, I did my best with my best understanding, but if only I knew better, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have done that. Right. So it's, I, the reasonable person with the information they had is safe there, but I, I want to be, you want to be better. I want to be better, but I don't know what questions to ask myself. So you can hurt. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if I said it right, but Naritai. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's so we, we want to be better than that. I think we would all agree. There is some limit at how far, uh, how many causal steps removed from a given situation you re- you should try to be knowledgeable before your responsibility is kind of diffused into the background. But it's definitely we would definitely desire as rationalists to be more than one causally causal step aware. Yeah. The to me one of the most important lines of this uh, litany is owning up to it doesn't make it worse. Whether you know you have cancer or not, or whether you know this thing is true or not, once you find out, things aren't worse off. It's exactly the same it was before. All that changed is your knowledge. So you're better off having that knowledge. Well, like like Grace said, it, this is easy, easy to point at a religious person. Um, and so if if you if a religious person seriously considers and decides, all right, you're right, God isn't real, mm-hmm. they might argue they're worse off because they liked living in their deluded bubble. Right, but God never was real in that point, so they aren't worse off at all. All that changed was their knowledge, and now they can take better steps in life the magic was in you all along <laughs> yes <laughs> or there I, was no magic all along <laughs> i actually have uh, pointed that um borrowing from not you can uh, borrowing from is that your true rejection mm. um at a couple of religious people um in, in the christian case all right so god comes down from the heavens and looks you in the eye and says outright everything in the old testament is true and everything in the new testament is not mm. what what's your reaction to this and the first response that I got when I asked somebody this was uh, along the lines of hooker and hookers and blow until we all die. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. and I, I said, really? Like, all, all you'd have to find out is that you made one large mistake to turn into a suicidal hedonist straw man. Yeah. And he said, well, only if I thought suicide would be enjoyable. Okay. I mean, at least that's an answer. It's what well, scares me is people who say, "No, no, I need the I need the moral code from the Bible, otherwise, or from God, or my religion, or whatever. Otherwise, I'd be out raping and killing people." And that, it's like, that, if that's what's stopping you, I want you to lose my number real fast. Like, yeah. I yeah, like that. That's the the issue. You you only you you've gone through the whole experience of parenting, for example, and the only reason you care about your kids is that you think you have externally imposed duties to that effect. Uh, one, I don't buy it, and yeah. two, horrifying if true. <laughs> in, in the same vein, the last two lines, people can stand what is already true for they are already enduring it, I think is, was for me important to keep in mind when going through the uh, quantum um, quantum physics sequences because a lot of that, some of that stuff anyway, leads to a sort of nihilism. Um, anytime I think of the the fact that the universe may be infinitely big, I quickly fall into nihilism because then if everything is happening an infinite number of times, why does anything matter? But, you know, I've already been enduring that being true for my entire life, so apparently I I could stand the truth. Exactly. I like that a lot. Yeah, whether or not that's true. Or, or, yes, you, you put it more... I was just going to try and reiterate, but you already put it succinctly. Perfect. The corollary, I guess, comes in big gold letters on the cover of a wholly remarkable book, don't panic. Right. You can stand what is true. <laughs> it was true five minutes ago before you knew about it. Yeah, exactly. All right. And since that one was so short, we are also doing the apocalypse bet today. 
I think it's fair you grab this one if you'd like, Gray. All right. So uh, this is a uh, post by Eliezer that doesn't show up. I, this was in the original sequences, right? Because that's what yes. you're using as source. Yeah. Okay. So it, it didn't migrate into uh, Rationality for oh. AI to Zombies, but it's about... I totally know why, too. Um, should I hit it then? Or did you get a chance to read it after I, I did get the chance to read oh, okay, it. okay, okay. And the, the reason... So it, it, it covers uh, the idea of a prediction market on events that are of such grand import that they're going to disrupt this the either the ability to settle the contract or the importance of settling the contract yeah. in a way that that makes the bet hard to sell I mean, like anytime someone wants to bet like I, I bet you the US dollar will collapse after you know in, in the next 10 years you can always take them up on that bet because if you lose the bet you don't have to pay up because the dollar has collapsed yeah and that there's a the problem with that is the absurd specificity of the prediction that it implies. If you think it's going to happen in give or take 10 years, say, I think it's going to, on January 1st, 2030, uh, the US dollar will be worth 0 0.01 Vietnamese dong. Currently, the exchange rate's about 50,000, if I remember right. Okay. So that, that sounds like some serious collapse. Yeah. Um, so you, you could set up, the simplest contract for this would just be, all right, uh, you owe me, I, I bet that it's not going to go wrong uh if the exchange rate's higher than that then you pay me a million dollars on january 1st of 2030 and if it's lower i pay you a million dollars and and given the the odds involved this is a huge like just a preposterously advantageous bet um, but in the all or nothing scenario described the the prediction you have to make is so specific that if you were right about all the reasons for the u.s dollar collapsing but off by three days and in fact the dollar imploded on january 4th when uh, East Timor invaded Hawaii, mm -hmm. then you'd still be out the million useful dollars at the time of the bet, right. which which isn't desirable. And Eliezer suggests a sort of reverse uh, prediction contract that still pays these sort of even odds on this, where if I think gold's going to become worthless in 10 years, or you think gold's going to be worthless in 10 years, and I think that it's going to be no earlier than 20 years before it's worthless. Mm -hmm then I could pay you an ounce of gold every year for the next 10 years. And then if gold is still worth anything, then you pay me, I mean, or if it's not, but yeah. you're, I'm getting a much better deal if it is, yeah. then you pay me two ounces of gold plus whatever interest for the 10 years after that. And in either case, one of us has obtained the value of the amount originally bet uh, net. Yeah. Which... But it, it doesn't have the same absurd... Uh, specificity of prediction because if if you if you're betting it's going to happen in 10 years and it happens in 11 you've still won the bet overall but at much but at somewhat lower odds yeah the the so i was raised jehovah's witness as some i sometimes bring up and they are very much a the apocalypse is coming very soon sort of religion so uh if you found a true believer it would be entirely reasonable to set up a sort of bet with them that i will give you i don't know a thousand dollars a year for the next 20 years and then after that, you give me $2,000 a year for the next 20 years, and we'll adjust these for inflation every single year, right? Uh, so in which case, you know, you end up giving them $10,000, and they end up giving you back $20,000, and you make out, unless the apocalypse does come, in which case you've given them all this money until the apocalypse, so they lived a better lifestyle, then the apocalypse comes, they've won the bet, basically. They don't have to pay you back. Uh and on its face, it looks like a pretty good bet, but <laughs> it, I mean, I'm smirking, sorry for sidebarring, but it puts me in mind, there are businesses that say, we'll take care of your pets after the rapture, 
Oh, you pay us like a monthly fee, and if the rapture comes, we'll take. We promise we'll take care of your pets. Yeah, okay. yeah. That, that's, that's interesting. Right. <laughs> I, I would feel bad about practicing dark arts on that level, but it's interesting <laughs> that you can get people to take that apocalypse bet if you structure it properly. Yeah, uh, I think the reason it didn't make it in um, is that Robin point- Hansen pointed out in the comments that it wouldn't work, mm-hmm. and Eliezer came back two years later, long before editing rationality from AI to zombies, and said, uh, "Past Eliezer, Robin's completely right about this, and stop arguing with him." <laughs> Yeah. So what, and, what and, was Robin's? Uh, Robin had a thing. Well, okay. Robin had a thing about um, some technical economic thing about how due to interest or whatever interest rates, this would not quite work out. I personally didn't understand it. All I know is that I saw in the comments, uh, Eliezer says, dear past Eliezer, Robin is just right here. Your idea doesn't work. Accept it and move on. <laughs> Which, first of all, I thought that was pretty fucking awesome because that's like what you want to do as a rationalist, right? Like you publicly acknowledge you were wrong and you just accept it and you stop fighting it. And you move on with your life. And I was like, incorporate that into your brain and keep going. And that's that's exactly what you want to do if you're a rationalist, right? Yeah. Uh, I found Robin's reason for it. Um, mm-hmm. The reason he gives is that the, the interest rate, which is effectively going to be what dictates the odds of the bet, mm-hmm. um, combines preferences about having stuff on some at, at some future date versus the present uh, ver- and also beliefs about whether you're actually going to have to give up anything of value to satisfy the contract. Mm-hmm. And you can't, in practice, separate those two effects in a way that makes the- it possible to set an appropriate interest rate. So, like I said, stuff that's over my head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, though The reason I personally think it would never work is because if you think the apocalypse is coming, you don't save up for the apocalypse. <laughs> you spend all the money that you're getting from this bet and all anything else that you make. And then after the date of the apocalypse, you're like, well, shit. Sorry, I can't pay you two thousand a year. I got nothing. And I declare bankruptcy. Yeah, basically, <laughs> and they would get out of it. I would expect to never see that money again if I were to make such a bet, because anyone who really believes in the apocalypse is going to live as if they thought the apocalypse was coming. I have a bet with my mom that I won't hold her to because I already forgot the specifics, but it was something like, I'll give her a thousand dollars if by twenty thirty the established consensus is that e-cigarettes are worse than regular cigarettes. Hmm, okay, and if they're not, then she owes me like. $10,000 or something. Wow. She was uh, really confident on this. Which was kind of insane. That's mm-hmm. why I told... And she was like, well, you know, I'm not sure. I was like, well, then let's let's put money on it. Not mm-hmm. Seriously, 10 to 1 odds. And not, I, I'm so... Sh- wait, maybe it was the other way around. Do you have this no, written down somewhere? No, that's why it's, it was oh. a throwaway joke on the phone. But okay. it, it was the other way around. I told her I'd give her $10,000 okay. and she'd give me one. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was where I'm 10 more times more confident than she is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, One thing I do want to say, as long as we're discussing this sort of prediction contract structure, um, it's not useless categorically. It is useless in case of apocalyptic events for the reasons we've gone over. But I do have a bet going over on whether the U.S. will invade Venezuela to resolve the presidential crisis. Uh, I expect that they will not. And we have a dollar rolling uh, for every month of this year from me to the other person and two dollars rolling back if it hasn't happened or from the first six months of the year which i've already gotten that part but whether i turn a profit quite the size of the original bet will depend on it not happening by the end of the year interesting that's pretty cool yeah this you said, you said a buck so this is just kind of like just put a little money where your mouth is yeah nice is this on bets all bear witness and uh, no it's it's not made with another rationalist actually okay. made with the, the friend that i spent this week visiting okay but uh i would actually totally be willing to get behind us suggesting this as a default form of prediction over time yeah. in bets let all bear witness that also like keeps it fresh in everyone's mind yeah if you're paying out every month yeah so someone just goes in and posts all right uh it's been 60 days now on this contract it's the second month and uh, 
For Mount those... Rushmore still hasn't caught fire. Yeah. So I'm, I have just Venmoed $2 to David Yusuf. For uh, people who are not familiar, Bets I'll Bear Witness is a uh, channel in the less not less wrong in the Basin Conspiracy Discord where people bet on future events like this. I feel like there's an app idea here, and you could just have your Bets All Bear Witness app in, instead of like your Patreon app. Yeah, and I think at that if we actually had an app for it, we might start running into uh, gambling law issues. Yeah, that's fair. You got to keep it small time, and yeah. yeah. But but I do like the. I mean, I I just get my receipt for my Patreon every month, and so if I got my receipt every month, that was you know handled as far as the terms of the bet set up in advance, and that money's either coming in or going out every month. That'd make it nice and easy, but it would take some of the mindfulness out of it. I want to have to write that check or send that Venmo every every month. So cool, I love it. One thing before we um go that I found very interesting. In the last paragraph, uh, Eliezer says, if the predicted date was hovering around 2080, I would pick up as much of that free money as I dared. Which uh, tells us that Eliezer thinks the end of the world is coming by 2080. <laughs> if was the start of that sentence, though. Well, yeah, if the predicted date, if someone was willing to offer him a bet for 2080, he would take that Although, bet. Oh. I, I think what he's betting on there, though, is the AI singularity. Yeah. He's, because yeah. that's one of the events he specifically calls out as likely to disrupt the settlement of trades right and not necessarily the end of the world but something where the after end of the world as we know it right yeah the american dollar will not have any value at all for whatever reason or be uh, it because we're all paper clips or be it because we have transcended the use of money what are the words? What, what fucking year is it what God are the exact it. words that harry uses for this uh it won't end the world but it will warm up a small part of its surface <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah the um we we are in almost 2020 so 60 years to go from for from the original prediction i'll try and hold out that long yeah i just find that interesting information to have i wonder if he still uh feels that is the case um based on things that have happened over the last 10 years or if he's moved that date up or pushed it out i hope he's moved it up yeah this, this... I, I think he said that he uh when um when alpha go happened i think he said at that point he moved up his timetables for everything which I don't know is a seems like a pretty significant update. Yeah. yeah. Um this is one of the cases where I would much rather read uh Gwern writing about something than Eliezer because instead of being a stream of consciousness of essays, Gwern basically writes a git repo of Gwern's mind and updates these things over time and will note he change logs everything. Ah. So you could you could go through Gwern's change log and see January 21st, 2020 this crazy thing has happened, and I've just updated my estimate for the singularity from 2060 to 2065. Interesting. Okay. And uh, I actually did cons- – one of the first things I considered podcasting was Gwern, but his idiosyncratic oh publishing style presents some unique challenges there that I haven't completely figured out. Yeah. Plus, it's so fucking dense. Yeah. it's it, And in particular, his most famous stuff has pictures which on which the essay depends for a lot of its appeal. And – like the this waifu does not exist got several times more traffic. I think you guys brought this one up on a previous uh, episode. Uh, it's got several times more traffic than any other page on Gorn.net, but it depends on pictures. So even though it's the one that people would listen to most in the podcast, yeah. that's not helpful because it you can't because it won't work in podcast form. Did you say this waifu does not exist? Yeah, uh, he he trained a neural network to generate uh, anime girls. Oh, okay, okay. Right after the what they made that one that trained the one to make human faces that yeah. don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go on to a few quick side topic things before we go into listener feedback and then end things. Sure. Okay, uh, the first side topic thing I wanted to talk about was that um, there is currently a RSS feed for 
um, we want more that has the first few that has the HPMOR podcast episodes right before the we want more episode in the feed so you can like listen to it if you want to listen to the text if you want to before you listen to the analysis of it however uh, I will add this link and I want to thank the person on our discord who made it available however you're going to start doing that just natively well, however it works easiest. I just saw Koi pasted this gigantic XML file that I had no idea how to put into my podcast feed. So Yeah, I, I think it was an RSS uh, feed. But uh, did you want to do it? Like, I mean, we can do it on the official We Want More RSS as well. Uh, so if, if I'm understanding, this is sort of interleaved. Like we would hear episode zero discussing some of what Stephen wants to accomplish with the podcast, mm-hmm. followed by chapters one through five, followed by We Want More episode one followed by 6 through 10, followed by the we want more of that. Exactly. Oh, that actually sounds... That... Although it would just be chapter 6, because then they'd discuss just chapter 6 in the next episode. If oh, right, more. yeah. That and just... how, how does it update which episodes I'm doing? Um, like... I I think he does it manually on the current uh, RSS feed. Oh, oh yeah, the, the thing he set up on GitHub. Yeah. Yeah, because okay. he, he can basically just copy-paste from the the HPMOR podcast RSS feed in the order desired. But if you wanted to do it on the official one, I could show you how to do that, and it'd be, like I said, super easy. Um, I'm flexible. We'll have to. We'll. I'll we'll talk about it afterwards. Yeah, that okay. sounds that sounds cool. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give some thought. In that case, the other thing I wanted to talk about is Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Whole. Oh man. I'm so okay. glad. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to ask. So it I, sounds like you liked it. I don't want to. I, I I really don't want to oversell things because I've noticed that like if I go in with just like medium expectations for something, and it far outshoots those, I am blown away. Whereas if someone tells me this is the best thing ever, and then I go see it, and it's like. 98% of the way to the best thing ever, but not quite there. I'm like, mm, not not what I was expecting. So, um, you know, some people dislike Jojo Rabbit. I hear some uh, critics really were not very pleased with it at all. Some critics are idiots. Okay, that's fair. Uh, but That's not even a statement about the critics for Jojo Rabbit. I'm just saying yeah, in general. Yeah, just it's it's true. But so Sturden's Law applies to critics, critics as, as well as the things they're criticizing. Yes. Is that 30% or 90%? Of 90% bullshit? of everything is crap. Gotcha. Yeah. But uh, I went to see Jojo Rabbit. And uh, I was expecting it to be kind of touching and kind of funny, but like not huge in either way. And the movie ended up making me cry twice. Same. Uh, I normally do not cry through any sort of movies. Uh, so this this was just, it was perfect. The mix of of humor and childish innocence, plus like the horror of the Nazi regime, plus just Taika Waititi. ordinary Germans trying to be people, but being subject to this regime and being evil because of it. Like the combination of all of that was just so fucking amazing. And oh my God, it was, I loved it so much. So Yay. You might like it as well. It's not the best movie in the world, but it's really good. I can't give much higher praise than it made me cry twice. I can only second what Inyash said. I bet we cried at the same points. I wish we had seen it together, but it, time scheduling was weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, it made me laugh. It starts off hilariously. I pitched the movie um basically if you if you haven't seen the trailers it, the trailers don't spoil anything it takes place the, the protagonist is what an 11 year old hitler youth mm-hmm. and his uh his friend is his imaginary friend adolf hitler played by taika watiti what were you gonna say oh i i haven't seen it so i'm listen i'm following this and literally writing it down to watch later cool yeah, yeah. and so i won't spoil anything other than um it if you're familiar with Taika from Thor Ragnarok or from what we do in the shadows or hunt for the wilder people. Um, That's why I wasn't expecting anything too huge. Cause I was like, yeah, Thor Ragnarok. It was funny. 
But, you know, okay, I, I, I'm expecting that kind of humor. I didn't know he could deliver emotion on this level either. Yeah. And it was wild. And, and again, so... I don't want to oversell this because that always ruins things for no, me. Yeah. It's, and... it's, it's a good movie. It's not the best movie you'll ever see, but it is a good movie. And, yeah, the caveats aside, I, or, or included, I totally agree, but... Um, and some I, people don't like it. And I, I'm, it's not I'm, for everyone. Yeah, I was just, I was amazed because I, I had no idea it was going to have an emotional load to it, and it did. Yeah. And so... I think that's what took me by surprise. Yeah. So now we've ruined the movie for everyone, because now they know there's an emotional load to it. Well, I don't think knowing that will hurt your experience. Okay. It might. You haven't actually said which direction of crying it went in, so no. it's possible that, like... It, I was crying out of rage at how bad this movie is. <laughs> Perfect. So, all right. So yeah. Now, see now. Now you've primed some low expectations, and the movie and people's experience of the movie can only benefit. That's that's the way to do it. Yeah. It's always really hard to get people to go see something that you really liked without overplaying it too. Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you tell someone like this is the best Harry Potter fanfic I've ever read? Without them expecting fucking, you know... The best thing they've ever read. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, as long as we're doing movie reviews, I saw Midsommar last night. Okay. Which is two hours and 50 minutes that I'll never get back. Oh, really bad, huh? Yeah. It was by the same, I think, director or writers that did The Wit. They spelled the two Vs because they're idiots. Oh, yeah. And um, Hereditary. Okay. And Hereditary was... I saw Hereditary the I saw the witch. Hereditary was interesting. It was a good spiritual successor to the witch. Which, okay. if you didn't see it, if you like looking at artsy stuff, it's great. If you want to spend two and a half hours doing that, you can't understand any of the dialogue because they oh. speak incredibly low with thick accents. Mm. There's very little dialogue. I don't know any of the characters' names. The plot sucked. There was like spoopy moments, but that's it. And and granted, I'm an, I'm I'm a surface level observer of things and. Mm. The analysis, like Rachel showed me the last line of the script that they had for this Midsommar movie, and I'm like, okay, that did not come through to me at all. Midsommar is this like made up Swedish cults summer festivity thing, and they're they're grad students. They're going to go do this with a friend. Oh, I've heard about this movie. And they go, and the girl, the protagonist, has this conversation with her boyfriend that you're meant and works perfectly to hate because he sucks. Um, that. No, no, we need to get out of here. Like nobody knows about this stuff. We're we're all gonna die. Like that because movies. Like hmm. she's genre savvy for that for that conversation of saying, look, you, you know how this is all a secret. Like there's no way that we're gonna get out of here. We should leave. And then she just forgets that whole thing. And mm. and without spoiling anything else, like it's like no man, just you had it, and then you just you just pick up the idiot ball for the rest of the movie. And in her defense, the idiot ball was presented in the form of. Drugs being given to people constantly. Oh uh, well. So this is it was actually a beautiful movie to look at, and it was well choreographed. And there's several shroom trips involved, and things look like a shroom trip. I mean, if I and was it, drugged up, I might have a hard time doing anything reasonable too. That's fair. Um, but it but so so as far as visually, it was a really fun movie. I it just could have been an hour shorter. Okay. Um, but the, like the their their visualization of what it was like to be outside on mushrooms was actually pretty good. Okay. Like things are breathing and moving, mm-hmm. and in a way that. Even later on, you're like, why the hell is... Oh, yeah, because she took shrooms. And so um, that, that that part was fine. But anyway, that was the most recent movie I saw, and I highly regret seeing it. Okay. <laughs> Did you have anything not related to anything, Rationalist? Um, let's see. One podcast I would refer to people's attention. Uh, it is not Rationalist, but the, the, the author is a Mormon and considers it a Mormon apologetics podcast, although it, I honestly listened to dozens of episodes before I picked up on his religiosity. Mm-hmm. So either I'm really oblivious or he's impressively subtle. 
I, in any case, he, he disagrees with rationalists on a lot of things, but he's a fan of Scott. And for a religious writer who most who put out like in the last two weeks an episode entirely called the blind spots of atheism Mm -hmm. he is incredibly good at engaging respectfully with the people he disagrees with so he he, like i've I've corresponded with him a little bit by email uh, about some other subjects like why there the there are so many mormons getting into speculative fiction these days Mm -hmm. and the answer to that apparently is because orson scott card got a professorship at byu oh okay then it network effects from there um, but he's incredibly good at discussing rationality adjacent themes and being respectful and thoughtful about it, even when he's disagreeing with whatever the modal rationalist position is. Mm. He's got a, a moderately scathing criticism of the Mormon Transhumanist Association, which I didn't know was a thing until I listened to his episode about them. But even when he's based when when he's talking about uh, what an inquisitor might consider heresy. He is still very respectful, methodical, and not contempt. Like there's no contempt and no animus when he's talking about these things. So if you want a rationality discussing but non-rationalist podcast, uh, we are not saved. Also readable in text form at wearenotsaved.com is a really good one. And he's uh, he's the second podcaster apart from Aniash who convinced me that a podcast was a thing to that, that I could sit down and do. Sweet, awesome. I'm downloading an episode now. That sounds like a lot of fun. Going on to listener feedback? Sure. Uh, the first one isn't really a feedback in so much as it is a list of links, which are going to be included in this episode. Uh, but Lorian Chang, I believe, from the subreddit, gives us a whole bunch of air pollution links, which we didn't include when we were talking about air pollution in the last episode. Uh, there's one on teen exposure to air pollution reduces IQ levels long term. One on air pollution raises dementia risk. One on air pollution deaths. And then also, uh, we got a link regarding medical staff being fine with long hours, doctor suicide rate highest of any profession. So a uh, bunch of really interesting links to um, back up things we were saying before about air pollution being bad and contradicting us on doctors being okay with their hugely long hours. When was the do- doctor conversation? Um, when we were talking about people who are uh, okay working a lot and not needing breaks all the time. Oh, like you guys were talking about were. that. I didn't feel that way because I always feel super lazy that's why i didn't resonate okay i remember yeah yeah that, perfect i have a bunch of projects that i don't finish for that reason and um one of the reasons that i settled on my produce something and fix it later uh podcasting method uh people who listen to the first couple of episodes i apologize i am working on remakes but for the sake of my actually getting anywhere on this project i had to stick to a schedule and then go back and fix it even if that was more difficult mm-hmm. um as far as the long hours, I'm with Steven on this one, and if I could somehow, if I could do what the, the what I saw in a recent article for an ad agency, ad agency in New York, and work a 25-hour week by default, plus things that require you to stay into the late afternoon, that would be worlds better than anything I currently do. Mm. Well, because a lot of time is just spent, you know, filling out the clock. Yeah, like I don't, I don't got six hours. I don't got eight hours of work today, but uh, I'll just work really slowly so that I go home at the right time. And I don't want the company to think that they need to give me more work. Yeah. And the company doesn't want to think that they're paying me for an incomplete job. Mm -hmm. So even though neither of us would actually prefer this, it's well, damn you, Moloch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm reluctant to add to that about my current jobs. So okay, well. 
I'll, I'll push through and just say that we had that conversation. The the head of HR was visiting the Denver office. Most of our office is in Royal Oak, uh, Michigan, which is two hour two time zones ahead. And they leave the office at 6 p.m., which basically means that after 4 p.m. our time, we shouldn't really push to production or do anything because there's no one, there's not a full office to help fix if something explodes. So our last hour or so every day is typically pretty slow. Um, and our, our HR guy was kind of surprised about that. And I was like, that's, that doesn't mean that we're not working. It means that we can't like finish something at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's in, in, in programming, it's common that you don't push things, you know, the la- at the second half of Friday, right? Because if it takes a couple hours to pop up and then at four o'clock on Friday, everything explodes, then everyone has to stick around until it's fixed. Yeah. So blow it up on Monday morning, not on Friday afternoon. Yeah. I, want I to feel skip like that's couched enough. My job's safe. <laughs> <laughs> I want to skip the next feedback because that involves Jess. So going on to Vape Carl Marx, uh, also from the subreddit, talking about the straw thing when we were talking about uh, pollution, plastic pollution, that kind of stuff. Uh, every marketing department was super happy to have a thing they could do that wouldn't cost anything and they could say made things better. It doesn't hurt to do it. Plus, it kept them from having to make real changes, so it's a win-win from a rational business perspective. Uh, yeah, that's that's. I think I touched on that once before, that corporations uh, can't like you, but corporations can be woke. And it's really much more of a branding thing than anything. I just went out. In fact, when I bumped into you, we went out to the place next door, mm-hmm. and my brother and my mom were in town, and they had whatever biodegradable straws. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, "I hate these because they always get soggy and stuff and useless." And yeah, yeah and, and I'm like, "Yeah, it's it's a drag because on the individual level, what can you do to fight, you know, climate change or the pollution of the planet?" It's like I personally can vow that I'll never spill 4.3 billion barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Um, but given that that shit happens. <laughs> It's like, all right, cool. What did you do, Stephen? Oh, I, I, uh, I used the right straws and energy efficient light bulbs my whole life. It's like, mm-hmm. great. Well, thanks. Like, and it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the straws thing really doesn't make any difference, but it lets them look like they were doing something different. It lets them create a commercial with one of the Jenners handing a Coke to a SWAT team guy, which doesn't actually make the world better in any way. But all of a sudden, you look like you're, you know, socially responsible or whatever. Wait, is that a thing? That that commercial? Yeah. I don't know which Jenner it was because I'm not familiar with them. It wasn't the um, Caitlyn Jenner. It wasn't Kim. It was is it all was, I know because I recognize chi- it was a child Jenner, right? It was yeah, youngish. Yeah. I have no. I don't. That's the only looked one like I teens know. in my yeah. estimation. Who knows? Yeah, but yeah, I remember there was um, I think there's an SNL bit making fun of that commercial. Okay. Uh, or some other comedy sketch. Maybe maybe it was Key and Peele, but that sounds too many years ago. But yeah, it's hilarious. Hmm. No, here have have a Coca Cola, and it's, it was just surreal and stupid. And yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Car- Vape Carl Marx also says, uh, when I think it was me that said the whole nation is more left than right. Uh, the response is what? By what metric? I can't imagine one that would be agreed upon that has America as a generally leftist country. If you look at the policy positions of the Democratic Party, they would be almost center-right in most Europe. Which, yeah, that's that's, that's fair. Although, it just feels that way because of our nice little bubbles. Although the far-right revival in a lot of Europe has would kind of move the U.S. relatively to the left. That's true. In, but, in, in Western Europe, then, I guess, because Eastern Europe is, is really having a far-right revival. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, we're, we're definitely very, very, very conservative uh, in both small and large sea senses, I guess, uh, compared to Norway. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that far right revival is is kind of a shitty thing because you know my home country is in Eastern Europe and they're having that same problem. 
When your current country is having that same problem too. So. That's true, but it's worse in Poland where these people are actually... Okay, fine. Trump did get elected. But <laughs> damn it. Yeah, but I, I, I'm I trying to say it's worse there. Um, I mean, the, the Hungarian uh, closet fascist party, Jobbik, actually has its domestic phone number and in 1488. Oh, really? Yeah. Their, their phone number in Budapest ends with uh-huh. that. What's the significance of that? Uh the 14 words, uh, white supremacist slogan that I'm not going to dignify by repeating here, and then the 88 is HH. Right, right. I knew that from Worm. Um, so. In- incidentally, Empire 88 is possibly the best name ever given to a white supremacist gang, and I'm glad that Wild Bo co- has copyright to it so nobody else can use it. <laughs> nice. Well, well, I just imagine some white supremacist reading Worm and like really enjoying it, be like, great gang name right here, guys. We should change in getting tattoos and stuff. Wasn't also... I don't hope Didn't that happens, but I hope that happens. 14 words appear on page 88 of Mein Kampf or something? Uh, the 14 words, I don't know if there actually are a German 14 words. The 14 words are uh, two similar formulations of a slogan by an American white supremacist, David Lane, ah, okay. in English. Okay. Well, never mind then. I was wrong about that. David, the Anarcha Fairfax, has, has some complaints about how I represented him, which is fair now that he says it. Um... The developing world bit, he says, was about all pollutants, not CO2 specifically. I should have made that more clear. Sorry. Um, okay. I, I did think you were talking about CO2 specifically at that point. But uh, if you were talking about all pollutants, very much um, agreed. Because when you look at maps of where, like, ocean plastic is coming from and uh, where all the dirty fuel is being burned and leaving smog that you can literally, like, see a few feet in front of you... Yeah, that's that's China, that's India, that's those places. The uh, the main river that dumps out of China into the Pacific Ocean is spewing plastic like crazy. Like when people are worried about their plastic straws getting in tortoises' noses, that's that's because of the trash that gets shipped to China, which they then um, do not necessarily great things with. In the U.S., we have pretty tight controls of over where our trash goes. It's usually well sequestered in landfills. So... Yeah, your straws weren't contributing to the problem anyway. Yeah. If you want to reduce overall air pollution, you should be supporting electrification and natural gas. Like, if you get people cooking with electricity and natural gas in rural China and India, you will do an order of magnitude more good than you're going to accomplish by trying to get American CO2 emissions down. We definitely burn an unhealthy amount of oil, and it would be good in the long term to fix that. But uh, cooking on a wood-burning stove is so much worse for everyone concerned. Yeah. Uh, David says, I'd argue that Dilly-like smog is at least as important as warming, but I got the carbon and pollution wires crossed in my brain. So, cool. Uh, he does also say, you need to consider the time series. The emissions, and now we're talking about just carbon emissions, the emissions of both China and India are trending up, while America's and Europe's are flat or falling. So you can't really say that America and Europe are driving warming, since that implies an upward trend. Um, I don't know, like, sort of point taken? I... I don't necessarily agree if we're still putting out the most emissions per capita each year. The more emissions being put out is what's causing more warming, right? So I would probably say we're doing the driving. But if you mean it in terms of who's increasing their emissions each year, then yeah, I guess that's more of a semantics argument. Well, and if you're looking at what's going to cause global warming catastrophe in 50 years it he's arguing it won't be the u.s right um it'll be that said if you want to feel some optimism here i think episode 170 the great uncoupling of sam harris's podcast mm-hmm. he interviews um andrew mcafee and it's just it's kind of like a stephen pinker like positive vibe on 
uh, hey, look, yeah, technology stuff, is, you know, especially emissions, is, is, is terrible. But China and India have access to things that we didn't have when we were when we were making this big of a mess. Namely, that we've already found some solutions that they might implement faster than we did. Yeah. So I think I think it's basically unconscionable to ask China and India to stay in, you know, levels of poverty that we would not tolerate. So obviously their energy consumption per person is going to reach our levels at some point, as it well should. Um, it just we just want the energy to come from good places. Exactly. Yeah. We need to start working on that nuclear fusion. I mean, start working on it. It's like, it's done. We just need to start building them. No, we got fission. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. I'm one yeah. letter off. <laughs> the, uh, now getting getting fusion right would be awesome. I think if I, if I, assuming no scaling, no economy of scale, I think I crunched the numbers on this once and figured out that a fusion plant large enough to produce, like assuming discounting transmission losses, uh, a fusion plant big enough to supply the U.S. overall demand for electricity would be the size of the Port of Los Angeles. Hmm. Okay. And uh, that sounds like a reasonable plot of land to give up. Yeah. Well, once and, we get fusion working. And while every, while everyone in Nevada doesn't want uh, Yucca Mountain to be built because solid radioactive waste, fusion doesn't have that problem. Anything goes wrong with fusion, it vents to the surrounding environment. You probably don't want to be within a few hundred feet. But it's not going to slowly kill you over years if you live three miles away. I also like the point that someone made is that uh, burning coal also has radioactive uh, particulate emissions. It's just that when we burn coal, it's blown out into the air to infect the entire world. Whereas when we have fusion, uh, the nuclear waste stays in solid form. So we can sequester it somewhere that's safe as opposed to putting it into the atmosphere. Hmm. Yeah. There, there's a kind of cool... Uh, commodity based on a related issue um the steel that goes into making geiger counters can only come from one source like one category of source and that is ships built after we started making ships out of steel but before 1945 why because all the because ships during that period only have background sources of radiation in the gases used to make them but if oh. every piece of steel made after the trinity test has extra radioactive crap that was spread through the atmosphere blown into it, and it adds an extra source of radiation that throws off the Geiger counter. Crazy. So this low background radiation steel is mostly collected from like sunken German warships. Huh. So Geiger counters are going to get really expensive, so if you want one, buy one now. <laughs> um, sort of. After, I don't know how long it's going to take, but eventually, since we haven't had nuclear detonations in air for a very long time, um, eventually those exogenous radiation sources will have just decayed and maybe around the year 2200 we can go back to uh using to just making plain old steel and putting it in geiger counters and hopefully I, we won't still be spewing radioactive waste from coal burning into the atmosphere at that point i don't know if that's i actually don't know if that's a source that's accounted for because i the the biggest radiation source i'm familiar with in coal is thorium i want to say mm -hmm. but i don't know enough about specific radioactive decay chains to be sure of how that would affect things oh and at that point we'd already been burning coal for a long time yeah so i, I don't okay. know if that's a source that if that's actually accounted for and if it is then every geiger counter that's ever been made is badly calibrated because we started burning coal in what early 19th century yeah well i mean i'm, I'm sure somebody realized that problem and it's calibrated they're... well enough for our purposes yeah neat uh david also says uh 
David he, also says should be the name of his podcast. Dude, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not super confident in this, but I'm pretty sure that coastal China has a much higher per capita CO2 emissions rate per capita, sorry, CO2 emissions rate than the USA. They just have their numbers artificially lowered by having a few million people living in basically third world farms, which don't admit, admit much carbon. Um, I, I never thought of that. I think that's a damn good point. Because coastal China lives a lot like the U.S. does in terms of energy consumption, so why are their numbers that much lower per capita? Very well, maybe for because of all those millions of of farmers in the in our in our country. Absolutely, I want to be perfectly clear. I didn't mean my last joke as a pejorative. It's it just uh, it's not saying that you say too much. It's that you say a lot, which isn't a diss, and everything that you say is valuable and it's really interesting. So that's that's actually a really good point, and I would be surprised. That is. Uh, I'm amazed that that's not a major part of the consideration, right? You've got people, a large section of the, of the population that's basically producing no no emissions because they're not doing anything. Yeah. And then their numbers are relatively like ours. And it's like, well, that's the numbers that were, yeah, okay. that Yeah, that, I, I'm surprised and intrigued. I would include as an example of the problem David's talking about North Korea. Hmm. Nobody owns a car, so they don't really, so they're probably not emitting much CO2, but the embargo has got to be restricting the technology they're using. So I'd expect that all of their power is coal fired because they have plenty of coal and people are cooking with either coal or Coke or wood, which put out a lot more pollutants per meal you cook than any, than modern heat sources. So North Korea is an example. I think would, I don't actually have specific CO2 output figures for them, but I would expect that they emit much less CO2 uh, per capita than you would think, but a great deal more in the way of other nasty pollutants, right. mining gold with mercury or that kind of crap. Yeah. Finally, Dave ends with, I kind of begrudge you saying that I said most pollution comes from the developing world, putting me on blast because the USA still emits a lot of carbon, and then talking about choking on smog and plastic in the oceans, killing endangered species, both of which are far and away driven by the developing world more than the developed world. Just wanted to point out that you should feel bad about that, but not really bad. And do you feel a little bad? I, I do actually kind of feel a little bad. We started Perfect. talking about carbon and used the U.S. numbers for carbon, but then switched to talking about smog and plastics, which was not fair. Well, what mistakes did we made there? We didn't have the virtue of narrowness. That's true. We were talking about pollution like it's one thing. Yeah. All right. Hey, bringing it home. If only we'd read this pod, uh, this uh, sequence before. I wanted to say Mott and Bailey, but that doesn't apply here because you're not retreating to a defensible claim. These are just two different claims that are being conflated by bad category boundaries. Yeah. All right. And our last feedback is from Philosophist, who this must have been on the Discord because it doesn't have a uh, subreddit stamp. Uh, I want to express that permanent hopeless Malfoy was something I disliked because it infers the limitations of rationality at a point where rationality was winning the day. Uh, this is when we were talking about the final chapter of Draco Malfoy interacting with Harry Potter. Thinking to solve a problem is so frowned on in the art of story making that this particular instance works against the cause. It was, however, realistic enough to be something that at some point happened with a character. But Draco was reformed from egoist fool to rationalist. He's the reason we should keep con- trying to convince people to have more rational and thought out opinions. He was our only hope, and then his rational soul was murdered. Not cool. I'd never thought of Draco that way before, which is why I really wanted to pull this out. But I think he's right. Isn't that... That's kind of what we want. Draco is the everyone else in the world that we're reaching out to. That we can make better through rationality. 
or he, not that we can make better, but whose lives can be improved, right? He's definitely supposed to be. I mean, Harry, like Harry says as much to Hermione when he's talking about uh, about Draco after the trial. It's like, okay, no, he grew up in the most closed, prejudiced, pure-blood environment that it's possible to have in magical Britain, mm. believing that you, Hermione, for example, are the worst sort of human being and need to be gotten rid of and all this other crap. And despite that, it took me seven months of manipulating him at school to the to get to the point where he had trouble dropping you off a roof. Mm-hmm. I think I think Draco's not meant to be every person we're reaching out to. He's meant to be the hard cases. Yeah. Right? But But just thinking of Draco as the people we can save... I like that thought. Me too. That is a happy thought for me. Knowing that there's somebody you can save already significantly improves the apparent tractability of the problem. Yeah. Like anybody who does like books of puzzles knows this. Knowing that there is a solution is and yeah. makes it feel like an entirely different order of problem than not knowing if the problem is even soluble. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he shouldn't have been left there in the story. That it was sort of an abandonment at the last moment. I. We'll have to give it some thought. I read that and I've got it saved, but I need I still need it's still processing for me. Yeah. Well on that happy note, anything else we've gotta we've gotta add? <laughs> no, I think on that happy note we can thank our happy patron. Yes. For bringing you this bummer of an episode. Well actually most of the episode was great. <laughs> it's true. This episode's patron is Christopher James, who I put in the note here, was a former supporter and then jumped back in. So uh thanks Christopher. It means a lot, obviously. Thanks for keeping the lights on around here, making things sound good and Thanks for helping to bring this rationalist word to more of the Draco Malfoys of the world. Maybe they will not have their rational soul murdered. Couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, also, thank you very much to Gray for showing up, giving us this episode this week, uh, sitting in for Jess. It it was really interesting. And uh, like I said, I'm going to keep listening to this podcast because it sounds really cool. And I'm, I'm going to listen to yours when I can find it. And I'm going to re-listen to this one to better process everything that you were talking about. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it has been just beyond awesome to to be on here. Um, meeting everybody at both ends of this of this trip I took was just great. And uh, I have actually honestly been considering moving. So knowing that there is a nucleus of a community of people that are easy to interact with here is pretty awesome. Yeah. I would add the the issue. One of the issues that I've had with Minnesota is that the social norms that we like as rationalists about dealing with other rationalists, the, the ask culture in particular are very much not the social norms of the def- that Minnesota defaults to. Okay. So it's, uh, um, we, we have a small core group who show up to the meetings. I'm one of the two people who runs the mailing list. So uh, email you can email me at gsvbemusementpark at gmail.com if you're in the Twin Cities area and wish to be added to that list. How it's, are the social norms different? Some people call it passive aggressiveness. The term mm. that everyone agrees on uh, captures it without being pejorative is Minnesota nice. <laughs> There's a very low threshold to engage in vacuous small talk and a very high threshold to advance your interaction with someone, even if you enjoyed the small talk. I was acquainted with someone from uh, an Eastern European country, and this is a thing that like I've noticed from some of my relatives too, and uh, she she basically said the same thing, that a lot of people from Eastern Europe come to the U.S., and at first, they're, like, shocked that everyone is constantly so friendly and, like, everyone is so open and trusting. And it's, like, it feels like an imposition because they have a lot of walls. And it's, like, all of a sudden, everybody wants to be, like, your personal confident, confidant and best friend. And it took her a while to realize that Americans make a lot of very shallow connections 
where everyone is very friendly to everyone and happy and smiling. And in Europe, she said in Eastern Europe, if you're smiling, you're probably an idiot. Because life sucks. There's not a lot of reason to smile. You, unless you have you know, some damn good reason, you shouldn't be smiling, you know? But the when people do smile at each other and become friends, they, like, form really deep bonds. And she said, like, in America, she simultaneously felt very invited and welcomed by everyone, but also very isolated because, like, forming those really deep friendships, she said, was much harder in America because everyone stops at the surface level. And to get to that deeper level, like you're talking Minnesota nice, to get to that deeper level of friendship is much more difficult. People are more standoffish. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of my early life isolated for that reason. I have a strong preference for the Eastern European way of doing things. Managing a bunch of small, a bunch of really shallow connections is considerably harder for me than man, than managing a couple of high quality ones. Mm. So, and when there aren't, when you aren't in a position to meet a lot of people, you don't meet a lot of high quality people. So it's hard to have more of those connections. Um, but the the way that one of the things that makes me so that makes me find interacting with other rationalists so much more pleasant than the baseline human is that there are norms that seem to accommodate this. There's no encouragement to just have these shallow connections, and there is active encouragement to develop the connections that you make. And it's it's great to be part of a social an expanding social group that does that. So thank you to Bayesian Conspiracy. Thank you to Bayesian Conspiracy Discord. <laughs> um, everyone who reads Slate Star Codex and Less Wrong and comments on these sort of things. I know I'm not the only one. It's a lot more pleasant with everyone interacting, with everyone doing it this way. That's awesome. All I can think of is pointless anecdotes to add to that, but I'll I'll spare everybody and just say that sounds great. I yeah I agree. That's I remember when Robin Hansen. This isn't the anecdote as this isn't the anecdote I was scrapping. This is a more useful one. When Robin Hansen was in town for his um, podcast with Sam Harris, we went out to lunch. We went out to dinner with him, and he asked like, "So what does your your guys's less wrong community work on?" and I was like, nothing. And like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, some people have like a startup. They're doing like a, an app or something. I'm like, oh, we just have the community that we like, the, the norms, the, um, I, I, it was a way less articulate version of what you just said. <laughs> I, I've, I've actually had some conversations both uh, on Discord and off um, with Jess last time I was here about what a rationalist startup might be like. And considering that things like Dragon Army have historically failed and that one of the cr- chief criticisms I've been reading about rationality recently is the that we're not doing anything that way. Hmm. It might be a huge piece of branding for there to be one such business. Like the first, the IPO of the first rationalist startup would make Scott and Eliezer household names and get people reading this. Well, if anyone has a really good idea, attach this to it and perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we'll see you again in two weeks. 